Welcome to the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 272, Covington versus Masvidal. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen, the executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network. Keith, how are you doing today? Well, I'm I'm doing really good. One thing I I always notice is I be extremely rude because I'm always like I do really good. That I'm so excited to talk about the fights that I get right into like what I want to talk about. But I always remember Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well, folks at home. <laughs> don't adjust your screens. I am a, a little more dolled up than usual this evening. That is not out of any misguided attempt to make this program any more professional or pretentious than it needs to be we are still just here to talk about fights and go into weird asides about historical stuff it just so happens that i came from a wedding just now so uh you know i i'm a little more dressed up than usual but it is the same old chillin and duffy show that you're used to yeah you know i feel like with what you're wearing and then i'm wearing this like adidas jumpsuit thing we look like uh Silvio and, and Polly Walnuts from, from uh, The Sopranos. <laughs> like one super dressed up and the other one's in the jumpsuit. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, one of us just needs to comb the hair straight up and do like the Polly Walnuts, just like perfect shell of hair that the man had. Oh, this card, uh, Covington versus Masvidal. It's interesting because there are so many ways in which they seem like polar opposites and then an other ways that this is almost a mirror match. But I think the most interesting parallel between the two guys that we're going to talk about in the main events in an hour or two here is that five years ago, these both of these guys were just another guy. Like Jorge Masvidal, I, you know, you and I didn't know each other well at that time, but I guarantee you at the, you know, five years ago, both you and I would have said, dude, Jorge Masvidal is awesome. And he's the hardcore fans insider tip for this dude's fights are always great. He's going to lose a lot of weird split decisions, but when yeah. he is on, he is awesome to watch. And I think we both would have put down money that he's never really going to break through to the UFC title shot level, let alone become one of the biggest stars in the sport. He was always going to be the insider tip. Uh, yeah. It wasn't a long period, but there was a short period, a couple months where he was the face of MMA. Oh yeah. And he's you know, still one of the big, most recognizable stars. So I'm not like trying to dog him or anything. I mean, he's, no. you know, he's still up there with the stars. But there was a little short period, you know, Connor was doing his crazy things. And, and you know, the perfect storm between the the sucker punching uh, Leon Edwards and the flying knee of Ben Askren and the super necessary, the, th you know. He was the biggest star in the sport for about six months. Yeah. And then you had the Nate Diaz. Like, there was a, there was a short period where – Journeyman George was the the face of MMA. He was. And then five years ago, Colby Covington is the kind of guy that I would have said, dude, he's going to get cut by the UFC, even though there are 20 or 25 welterweights on the roster that he would absolutely mop the floor with. But his fights are NyQuil. He is NyQuil on the mic. So he's going to be just a dude that washes out of the UFC and dominates somewhere else. And it's just going to be because he's kind of, He's kind of plain. Yeah, he he had. You know, who he reminded me of. He reminded me of a change of that Chael Sonnen did. Now Chael Sonnen is is much funnier. Like they have a different. I mean, some things Kobe said is pretty funny, but Kobe also. Chael had a change. Chael had this. Everyone hated him during the Anderson Silver. He's a dick, and then people kind of got it as oh, it's just funny. Like he, you know. 
he's got like 10 losses and he's like, you know, undefeated and all this. Like, he, it became embraced and loved. I don't know if Kobe will ever get that because he's gone a little, uh, a little more right wing than, than Chell. But uh, he did. But my point is, Chell was this boring wrestler who couldn't get noticed and then started winning fights, but still wasn't getting noticed and then suddenly starts talking trash. Like at that time, we never really saw before. And then became a star and Colby did the same thing. No, I, I think that's a, a great comparison. And uh, obviously there are some obvious parallels there because they both kind of embrace the, like, you know, I'm the red blooded American type thing, but I agree with they're you both, that they're both from the Northwest. Yeah. Right. Both, both, Oregon, both right? Oregon. In fact, Chael yeah. was an Oregon duck and Covington was an Oregon state beaver. So yeah. they're, you know, wrestling rivals, except for the age difference. Uh, but I, I agree with you because Chael, you could always tell that Chael got the joke. Yeah. Uh, he had a I'll, WWE like feel, but when he said yeah. it, and Silva, like you lose, you leave the weight class. I lose. I retire. That was like ultimate warrior, macho man, WrestleMania. I don't know, four or whatever it was, six or something like that. Yeah. That's a, that's the feel I had. Uh, you know, I, I completely agree with that. But so, you know, a, a few just a few years ago, both of these guys were in a completely different place than they are now. And the funny thing is, time has moved so fast that this was almost the last chance the UFC had to grab this matchup before its expiration date. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's funny because I'm thinking, you know, thinking about the card and one, you got to ask yourself, how many times do we have a card that headlines a UFC pay-per-view that has no, like, no titles on the line? But really, if we're being honest, no title implications are on the line because both these guys have two losses to the current champion. So unless Kamar Usman decides to leave the division, or both these guys go on huge runs, so that like they're not even close. They got to win five, six more fights and. And it's always, you know, it's the perfect storm where nobody else has really established themselves and they get a third shot. Uh, it's when can we say that? Like, what what fight is a comparison? There's, well, all the ones that you could say that about would be spectacle fights. Yeah. And this is a spectacle fight that just happens to involve two top five fighters. But yeah. In terms true. of its direct implications on the title picture in, the, in their division it might as well be like you know kimbo slice or something getting in there just you're, you're right like these are two guys that i and i don't mean this to be insulting but they might as well be fighting for the right to like wash and wax kamaru usman's car because that's <laughs> it, it's gonna be a while before people are dying to see either of these guys fight him again yeah i was thinking of a fight that I think was probably closest equivalent and it's not a perfect comparison, but it might be, I think it was UFC 47 when Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz fought for the first time. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you had the close friends, bitter rivals, I know Tito and Chuck wasn't as close friends as, as Kobe and Jorge was, but that the fact that both of them were coming off losses to Randy Couture at the time when they made the matchup, they were obviously much closer to a title shot. They only had one loss to Randy Couture, and actually Randy just, but I think the UFC before that was 46 is when he lost to Vitor Belfort with the cut eye and everything. But I was just trying to think of one where yeah. no titles on the line and it's just a pure hatred towards each other is why he became such a big, which it's still probably going to be one of the bigger pay-per-views of the year. I, I bet it will. Just the, the heat from Covington, because, 
Covington's still in that mode. He's saying, he he's saying stuff. Yeah, uh, and Jorge and, knows how to play it perfectly, mm-hmm. where he doesn't get back in and he just gives a little bit, and he that Jorge knows how to play his cards right. Yes, enough to make sure it's not one sided, so it looks fake. Enough that I'm gonna give it back a little bit, but I'm not gonna oversell. I'm not gonna get words battle. I'm still gonna come off as the street gangster, you know. Um, I'm excited. I me too. Uh, you know, south of that, this isn't the strongest card from top to bottom that the UFC would try to charge you 75 bucks for. It certainly benefits from having Rafael Dos Anjos versus Rafael Faziv kicked up to this card from a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. I mean, that's that's a solid co-main event because, frankly, it probably has more implications for the title picture of its division than the main event does. Dos Anjos, obviously a former champ at 155. Former champs in the UFC always have a quicker walk back to the title than someone who's never been there before. And Dos sure. Anjos, he had his little experiments at welterweight, but you know, it's come back to lightweight, has looked good, which is kind of surprising considering how old he is. And then Fazeev, it's just, he's got the highlight reel. He's got the pedigree. If he can get a couple of signature wins over the right kind of names, he's right there. And that's saying a lot in the UFC lightweight division, which is one of the hardest divisions to get into the title picture, that he, as only a 12-fight veteran, might be as close as he is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a good test for both guys because you're testing Dos Santos of what do you have left. Well, his last fight, he beat Paul Felder, taking the fight on extremely short notice with really one foot out the door. Yeah. And now he's taking a hungry, young killer who's looked like a killer, who's just beat a killer in Brad Riddell. And then on the flip side with Fazeev, you have a guy who looks like the star. He just doesn't have that marquee win, that marquee name, you know. So both guys benefit greatly with a victory. Yes. Like if if Fazeev beats Dos Anjos, you know that's going to be the first thing out of the UFC booth's mouth every time they talk about him from here on out. Like, uh, he beat former champ Rafael Dos Anjos. He was the first guy to do blah, blah, blah to him that we ever saw. And and definitely definitely how he does it. If he starches him, Mm -hmm. forget it. He's the new fancy toy. If he hits, like, the the wheel kick like he did on Brad Riddell, they're they're leading with that the next time he's on top of the card. Yeah. And he's that new – he's a new guy. It's People aren't talking about – Gagey, and then I mean, obviously they are, but like he's the fun one. He's the one. Oh, no one wants to fight him, you know, kind of the way Makachev is right now, where he, mm-hmm. as his rise, nobody wanted to talk, you know, fight him, and you know, where where by the time people see this, it will be after the Makachev fight. So some people will be like, "What are you talking about? He just Bobby Green just smashed him." Yeah. We're taping this before <laughs> that actually happens, so uh, take this for a grain of salt. What I'm what I'm saying, but I think people get the rise. Yes. Uh, One other theme for this card. One thing that, and you and I are pretty free with calling out what we see as like weirdness or counterproductive things the UFC does in terms of booking and card construction. But one thing they've done pretty well, especially in the COVID era, is load up cards with representatives from one team, which I think just allows those teams to condense travel. Okay, yeah. You know, so you have like fewer coaches and corner seconds coming in. You have less possible cross transmission of COVID or whatever else. 
there's five fights on this main card and four of them have an American top team fighter in them. And yeah. obviously the main event is two former top American top team guys, Colby Covington headed to Crosstown to MMA Masters. But yeah, four out of five fighters on the top card are not just ATT guys, but ATT mainstays. Yeah, like, absolutely. The new guy of them is Greg Hardy. And he at this point, he's been there for 10 fights. Yeah, yeah about four or five years now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, that's that's like the super team. I always find it funny when like a, a coach has to fly to, you know, spend three or four days in Ireland and then the guy gets beat or something like that. I'm like, man, imagine that. You fly over the across the country just to be, the, you know, waiting in a hotel room, jet lag and all that. And like, like if you, you deal with jet lag because you're going to Hawaii or something like that, yeah, cool. But deal with jet lag and just to see your buddy get beat up or the fight then, gets knocked out in two minutes. That that's a fun. long flight home at that yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would need to look carefully at, at the specific guys that are fighting, but there's always the chance that they might not, might as well not have condensed it because what if they have to bring out Conan and Pajon Pena and Mike Brown? Cause ATT at this point is like three different camps in one. It's gotten right. so huge. Uh, uh, you know, that'll remain to be seen, but uh, any other overall thoughts on this card before we dive in? Now, I'm sure we'll get into the, the main event a little bit more later, but yeah. First up on the UFC 272 prelims is a light heavyweight matchup between Dustin Jacoby and Mihal Olekshechuk. Jacoby, the 34-year-old, or sorry, 33-year-old American, is 16-5-1 overall. He is 4-2-1 in the UFC. That is slightly deceptive as he had an 0-2 run in the UFC all the way back in like 2012 or 2013. Since he has been back off of the 2020 season of Dana White's Contender Series, he is 4-0-1, so a five-fight unbeaten streak. He'll be taking on Oleg Shechuk. The 27-year-old pole is 16-4 with one no contest overall. He is 4-2 with one no contest in the UFC, and he comes into this fight on the back of back-to-back -back wins over Modestus Bukowskis and Shamil Gamzatov, whom he knocked out in the first round at UFC 267 last October. Odds on this one are fairly close, but Jacoby a moderate favorite. He's minus 190, where Oleg Shechuk is plus 160. Uh, Keith, I'm going to turn this over to you for your pick first, but uh, first thing I was going to point out is that these are two guys who are much more relevant in their division than I expected them to be the last time they popped up on my radar. For one, Dustin Jacoby is about as long shot as you could have given me to be really on the verge of being ranked in the UFC light heavyweight division a couple of years ago. I mean, he showed no particular signs of life in his first UFC run. He then went 0-2 in Bellator, 0-1 in World Series of Fighting, and spent like five years making it all the way to... Uh, you know, a glory kickboxing title fight. I figured he'd be a, a guy that just stuck around in glory, or maybe signed with Bellator again, where maybe he'd be able to do kickboxing and MMA. And instead, since he's been back, he is 4-0-1. The one draw was uh, against Iwan Kudalaba. And everyone else, he's, he's basically handled. Like, it's just a, a remarkable mid-career turn for a guy that I, I figured we'd never see at this high a level again. And same with Oleg Shechuk. When he lost two in a row to Oban St. Pru and Jimmy Crude, uh, I picked against him 
against Modestus Bukowskis. By that point, you and I were already doing these previews. I remember picking Bukowskis against Oleg and it wasn't a vote of confidence because I wasn't super high on either guy, but I was less high on Oleg And instead, he's, you know, uh, strung together two pretty good wins in a row as well. So here we are. They're, they're the curtain jerker, but neither of these guys is anywhere near fighting for their job right now. And again, the winner of this is probably going to at least come up in our rankings discussion at Sherdog afterwards. Uh, how do you feel about this one and who wins? Yeah, so I know the UFC with a couple changes to the card, this might not be the curtain jerker as, as it is as we stand right now. If it is, this is a hell of a fight to kick off the card. Like one thing we were talking about is, you know, not the the greatest card on paper for pay per view. But one thing we didn't mention is how deep the card is, though. Like there's some mm-hmm. really good quality uh, fighters on the prelims, and this is one I I totally agree with everything you're saying. Uh, Starting with Justin Jacoby, technically he hasn't lost an MMA fight in seven years. Now, <laughs> again, that's deceiving because he took a big portion of that out because of kickboxing. But when he returned to MMA in you know June of 2019, that's still a nice run. I mean, he's just counting the UFC and 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 you know if you want to toss in the Contender Series, he's had six fights. He hasn't lost any of them. Like that's impressive. Uh, talk about his style, glory kickbox as you mentioned. He's he's technically sound. He he had really great output in his last fight against John Allen. And credit to John Allen for not getting uh, taken out in that fight because he was he put a lot of damage on him. Good footwork, good lateral movement, cuts angles really well when he's attacking. Really good at the basic stuff. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Sean Strickland in that sense where nothing wows you what Jacoby does, but then at the end of the fight, you see what he can do, uh, the damage that compiles. Everything comes off of his jab, straight punches down the pipe. He just touches and then unloads with his opening. Kind of reminds me who we have in the main event. Kobe Covington does similar. Uh, he sets up his strikes by blocking his punches by parrying punches, which you know I, I prefer parrying. That's, in my opinion, that I think that's the second best defense behind uh, you know slick head movement. Uh, Perry's my second favorite. Brutal calf kicks. I, I know it's been a while now. I go back to that Justin Ledette fight, who's you know, the guy who's known for his kickboxing too. Yeah, you know, not kick, but his boxing, and he tore up Ledette's legs in the very first round with leg kicks. It took him like two minutes, three minutes, and he was done. Uh, he's a he's a weak uh, he's a weak wrestler. I mean, we saw that against Ian Kutalabo, who took him down nine times. But to his credit, he did work back up to get uh, back up. Move out to Olsejak. Uh, again, this is a guy that he looked good when he first joined the UFC. Then he had this, like you mentioned, this rough stretch where he looked bad. He's looked, besides winning two fights, he's looked good in those fight, two fights. Uh, he's a southpaw who's extremely aggressive, high output. He's a pressure fighter who throws tons of combinations. I, he attacks the body more than anybody in the division, maybe anybody in the UFC. Like I, You know I love guys who go down downstairs uh, that always pays off i was at a, a fight at bellator this past weekend and i was talking to um ray longo about that about uh, one of his fighters going down to the body and i was like yeah he got that big be- beautiful knockout but it was because of the body work to set it up first and that's something that all uh, sajak does good power uh, he kind of wings his overhand left and he has some defensive holes like he'll walk into shots to kind of land shots uh he's a i would say he's an underrated on an 
opportunistic wrestler. Like he can get takedowns, but his defensive wrestling is a big problem. Um, but his grappling has improved. I mean, it's been back-to-back fights that he hasn't been taken down against Gamzatov. Before he knocked him out, he, he Gamzatov tried taking him out. He couldn't. Uh, so that's that's things we've seen him improve. Uh, if you get him down, I haven't seen the improvements there. Uh, and he has recently got submitted. But those against much higher-level guys. Uh, so as far as prediction goes, this is a this fight is a banger. I, I'm really, really torn. Uh, Ola Sejak's aggression and power is troublesome. However, I will take Jacoby. He's the more decorated striker. He's also the more technically sound. I think he's going to have to defend a huge flurry from Ola Sejak right out the gate. Uh, but I think once he does, I think he'll settle in. I think he'll pick him apart from range, but especially just using that jab. So give me uh, Dustin Jacoby to keep his non-losing streak alive and win a decision. Uh, I'm falling right in line with you here. When I look at the matchup between these two, Ola Shechuk is in a better spot competitively right now than Justin Ledette was you know, a a year and a half ago when he fought Jacoby. But the same basic dynamic of a boxer versus a kickboxer is a lot of what I see here. And you pointed out, it took uh, Jacoby all of about five kicks to basically take Justin Ledette completely out of the fight. Like after like half, you know, uh, not even halfway through the round, like 90 seconds in, first four or five kicks, this was already, if Ledette doesn't knock him out in this first round, this fight's over. Like Ledette's not not gonna be able to stand up by the second round. Uh, in in his entire run in the UFC this most recent time back, Jacoby, the only real trouble he's had was against Kudalaba, and most of that was in the first round. The reason that fight was a draw is because the first round was a 10-8 round for Kudalaba, and it was all Kudalaba taking him down and just beating the absolute crap out of him. That's not something he's going to have to worry about against Mihal Olekshechuk, I don't think. So it'll be more competitive than the Ledet fight, but I think the basic dynamic that Jacoby is going to be a more diverse striker, uh, as you pointed out, a more uh, technically sound, a more defensively sound striker than Olekshechuk, I think he's going to be able to deal with the barbarian assault that Olekshechuk is going to launch in the first three or four minutes of the fight. He's going to be composed. He'll, you know, uh, defend himself well, parry those punches, use his uh, footwork, probably kick to the legs early and often, and uh, win probably a pretty straightforward decision in what nonetheless is a very will be a very entertaining fight. So, yeah, th- this card should get off with uh, with a bang. And even if Jacoby wins all three rounds, I have the feeling it's going to be a whole lot of fun to watch. Next up at UFC 272 is a lightweight matchup between Devontae Smith and short-notice replacement opponent Ludovic Klein. Smith, the 28-year-old Ohio native, is 11-3 overall. He is 3-2 since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. He is coming off a loss that was a second-round TKO at the hands of Jamie Malarkey, who appears further up this card. Uh, Before that, he uh, knocked out Justin Janes back last February. He'll be, uh, well, he had been scheduled to take on Eric Gonzalez. Gonzalez fell off the card uh, just eight days out from fight night. Up steps Ludovic Klein on short notice and up a weight class. The habitual featherweight will be fighting at 155. Uh, 27-year-old out of Slovakia is 17 and four overall. one and two in the UFC, and he is coming in off the back of back-to-back losses. Those uh, unanimous decision to Mike Trezano at UFC on ESPN 
uh, Rodriguez versus Watterson last May, and then a third round submission loss to Nate Landwehr last October at UFC Fight Night Lad versus Dumont. This fight is fresh enough. It was made the same day that we're recording this, which is Friday of the week before fight week, that there are no odds yet for this one. Devontae Smith was going to be about a minus uh, 200 favorite over Eric Gonzalez. I expect that when odds come out for this, he's going to be at least that much of a favorite over Klein, just given the change in weight class and the uh, short notice for Klein. But uh, I'm going to flip this over to you, Keith. But one thing that pops out to me immediately is that this is genius for Klein. He's coming into this fight off of back-to-back losses, which means in his next fight, there's every chance that he might be fighting for his job. Instead, he steps in here, and because he is the guy saving this fight, because he's the guy stepping up on short notice, he's probably not going to get caught with cut with a loss. So he comes into a fight where he's probably going to have a pretty easy time making weight, and he's, to use a cliche, he's playing with house money. If he wins, great. If he loses, that's no more than expected. Uh, so tell me how you see this fight breaking down. Uh, tell me if you like this better than the Gonzalez fights and who you think wins. Yeah, I think when you do a show with someone a lot, you start thinking the same way. Because I thought the same thing when that was announced. <laughs> like a guy's struggling, he's he's right on that cut list. You take the short notice fight, you pretty much guarantee yourself another fight. Unless something goes drastically wrong, you miss weight big or something like that. But moving up in weight. Uh, that said, it's a tough it's a tough matchup. Devontae Smith's good. My one issue, and it's kind of like just a pet peeve, I always feel bad for the fighter who their opponent drops out and you get a tougher opponent. And I actually think that's the case in this one. Like I thought Eric Gonzalez, I, I was picking Devontae Smith to smash him. Uh, if, if Jim Miller smashes him, Devontae Smith is a much more explosive, harder hitter at this point. Well, I, I thought he was. <laughs> the way Jim Miller is starting people, who, who knows? But uh, so Smith, he's he's a great athlete, but he he has just raw skills. But his technical skills uh, still needs to catch up a little bit. He's got some good footwork to avoid tax, but the pre- in his last fight, Jamie Malarkey just put nonstop pressure on him, and it really broke him. Uh, he likes being the aggressive striker. He wants to be the one coming forward. Uh, he but he, he also likes a brawl, which is. I don't think he's quick. I don't think he should do that, but he'll, he'll, want to, he'll throw caution wind, throw some big bombs, can get very wild. But when he sits back and, and, and stays a little calmer, quick hands, big power, his straight right, and his step-in uppercuts are two of his best strikes. He likes step-in knees, which you know I love. Um, he was doing, before getting knocked out, um, he was doing really well with calf kicks against Kama Worthy. Uh, if he gets in the clinch, he's just a physically strong guy where he can land knees. I would say he's an average wrestler. I, I know he has like a high school wrestling background, but he's not, definitely not a powerhouse wrestler. Like he's not going to out-wrestle many guys, but at least he has something in his back pocket. And um, one of the fights I actually saw him get out-wrestled was against John Gunther, of all people. Uh, John Gunther was taking him down. No, this was a long time ago on the regional scene. But if he's on top, he's he's aggressive with his ground and pound. Uh, if he if he does end up on top on a scramble, to move over to Klein, uh, Klein obviously someone I had to scramble the last minute as this was just announced. But what we've seen in the past, Southpaw, he's also very athletic, good footwork, more technically sound than than um, Devante is. He uses a lot of feints. I would say uh, he's got a great jab. I'd say he's got plus power. Really sits on his punches. Powerful leg kicks. Got a quick head kick. Uh, and he he showed some improved offensive wrestling against Mike Trezano, which was which was nice to see. 
I actually think he beat Mike Trezano. I know I said that last time. I'm saying it again. Uh, I thought he should have won, but it was not a robber or anything like that. Uh, but what is concerning is how bad he looked against Nate Landwehr. All the improvements he looked like he had on the ground. Landwehr, like Landwehr took him down and was putting him through like a bunch of submissions and, and just like two or three minute submissions attempts. So as far as prediction goes, these are two guys that I really liked when they joined the UFC, but I don't think either has really lived up to the expectations I put on them. I am picking Smith simply for two reasons. One, you mentioned climb moving up in weight. I think in these circumstances, it's a good move for him where you not have to cut weight down to 145 on short notice. But generally speaking, I don't know if that's a good move for him. But also Smith having that full camp. Uh, so give me Smith by decision. But I'll be honest, like you said, Smith could be like over a two-to-one favorite. I'm not very confident in this pick. I think it's a much closer fight than I think Klein's is shows some flashes of some really skilled fighters. So give me Smith, but I'm not very confident. Great. Thank you. Uh, I agree with the, the whole dynamic you've laid out there. And Klein is a guy that I'm still kind of, like, I've certainly not given up on Klein, but if Klein were to just fight his next fight at featherweights, Unless he got really squashed, I would probably have been arguing for him not to be on our cut list during the recap, just because I, I see all the parts there just needing to come together. And if you're watching this and you look at Klein's record and you see, oh, he's got you know eight knockout wins, eight submission wins, I, you know, I bet he's a real well-rounded offensive guy. That's really not the case. If you if you dig down a little deeper, his first eight wins, there's seven submissions and one knockout. His last uh, eight wins, there's seven knockouts in one submission. And really he racked up a lot of submissions against low level guys in uh, Eastern Europe early in his career at the UFC level. He's a striker. And I think at his best, he could at his best, he could be like someone we're going to talk about a little further up the card, Rafael Fazeev, a guy who's short and compact for his weight class, but uh, uses athleticism, explosion, good technique to you know overcome often a reach disadvantage uh, against larger opponents. I think that's kind of like the ceiling for Klein that I, I hope we see out of him here against Smith. If he just announced his his plan to move up to 155, had a full camp preparing for Smith, and they met at 155, I'd consider this fight close to a pick'em. But I'm with you, Keith. Just the the fact that Smith has been in camp for this, he's fighting at the weight class he's uh, accustomed to. Klein is moving up. He's fighting on short notice. And while Smith is kind of a short, compact, like burly lightweight himself, he is going to be taller than Klein and probably have a couple inches of reach on him. I, all of that tilts it in uh, Smith's favor for me. So give me Smith by decision. This should probably be a real fun fight as well. But, uh, you know, again, like I said off the top, good move for Klein to take this because anything positive that comes out for him uh, of this fight is just pure gravy. Next up at UFC 272, we had been planning to talk about the flyweight matchup between Jessica I and Manon Fioro. As of today, the 25th, uh, basically a week ahead of weigh-ins day, Jessica I just barely fell off the card. The UFC is currently uh, possibly looking for a short no notice replacement for Fioro, so maybe they get one, maybe they don't, but... In either event, uh, Fioro was one of the bigger favorites on the card going into this. She was fixing to be about a minus 400 favorite, I plus 300 uh, as the substantial underdog. 
And I coming into this on a three bout losing streak where frankly, it's the kind of matchup where she might serve as a name victory for Furo in a division where they're desperate for new title contenders. They're desperate for people that Valentina Shevchenko hasn't already destroyed. And this might've served as the win to possibly get Furo at least into the picture. I mean, I'm going to have you talk about Furo a a little bit as well in a minute here, but Furo right now, she's eight. She's just eight and one. She did have a kickboxing uh, career before this. She's a 32 year old French woman. She debuted in the UFC last January. Uh, she's won three straight since then over Victoria Leonardo, Tabitha Ricci, and most recently, last October at UFC Fight Night, Lad versus Dumont, Mayra Bueno Silva, whom she beat via unanimous decision. I picked against Fioro in her UFC debut against Victoria Leonardo, and it was no vote of confidence for Leonardo because I you know, didn't think she was super high level, but just my built-in caution about a dominant European or Asian prospect coming into the UFC on a long win streak, especially one like Furo, who had really run off of athleticism, size, power, speed in her regional career. I always want to see that person against the UFC level talent. I want to see him on the UFC scale. I mean, not to throw shade, but I want to see him after their first cycle or two through USADA she has passed all of those tests with flying colors and at least to me has exceeded all my expectations for her. She has looked absolutely fantastic in her three fights Uh, already. What one of the better kickboxers in that division, one that I already want to see against Valentina Shevchenko and has shown herself, uh, you know, capable of taking care of herself on the ground, at least in the few instances that she's been called to be there. So I'm hoping they find a short notice replacement for her. Even if it's just another Jessica I type, like a big name that's not in the best place competitively, I hope they find a way to keep her on this card. Either that or I hope they kick the I match up a couple weeks down the road and we get to see it. But uh, tell me what you're thinking about Manon Furo. Yeah, Furo's, we're in agreement. Furo's someone I really, really like in the division. I mean, you mentioned she's a great athlete. She's well-rounded. She's big for the weight class. She's powerful. She's aggressive striker. She's got both boxing and kickboxing, like good hands, good kicks. Um, has a mean streak in her, which I really love. Uh, like, she's, she gets out there. She's all business. She's looking to take your head off. Uh, and then she's shown to, you know, not so much in the UFC yet, but, She's shown some ground skills. I mean, I should have shown a little in the UFC, but especially on the regional scene. If she wasn't 32, there'd be a lot more buzz about her than, you know, as some, and, and rightfully so. Like, obviously, there's a reason why someone like a Casey O'Neill, who's who's killing it too, but she's much younger, there's a reason why she gets a lot more buzz than Manon Faroe. But Faroe is for real. And, you know, obviously, I don't know who, if they're going to get someone on short notice, if they're going to, if it's, is it going to be somebody who's, Already in the UFC, do we get like a contender series one or like kind of something like Washington? We get like a regional fighter, like a Hillary Rose or something like that, gets brought in and, and she gets killed. But there's very few people that gets brought in on short notice against Manon Fro that I am picking her win. So, you know, you bring in like a Laura Procopio, like Fro's got murdered this one. So the, 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 we, we weren't going to talk about this way, but I was like, hey, what if we give a Manon Faro prediction without knowing who it's going to be against? You know, Mara <laughs> Morello. She, she's going to kill everybody she's going to face. 
So I, I'm taking Fafaro by first round knockout against no matter who they put in. And breaking news, Valentina Shevchenko has just stepped up on short notice to take on Madan Farrell. We're a bunch of idiots. No, obviously that's not <laughs> happening. But, uh, you know, other than top five fighters, if somehow Caitlin Shikagian steps on, on short notice or something, that, well, I'm not expecting that. But, you know, if it's one of these unranked, someone coming off the contender series or something like that, give me Farrell. The short notice thing, considering we just finished talking about Devontae Smith and Ludovic Klein, if they take a straw weight who she's like, yeah, you know, I walk around at 128 pounds. I can make fly weight on, you know, on 24 hours notice. If they bring in like, you know, like a Courtney Casey type, this is going to be ugly. Ooh, yeah. Courtney Casey. Don't do a Courtney Casey. Well, actually, Courtney. I mean, please let me not have wished that into existence. But, you know, just like a a kind of mid-level straw weight that's available. I don't think Courtney Casey because she struggled making weight in the past. Like she's she's had to like strip down naked and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I don't think it'd be Courtney Casey, but like I'm trying, I'm trying. Now I'm just kind of scrolling through. Like the, I can see it being like Ashley Yoder. Yeah, you know, and, eight and, and eight. Ashley Yoder, who's like tall, you know, so they're gonna yeah. be about the same height. But Fiora's got like 15 pounds of muscle on her. Yeah, Mallory Martin, one of these like these are these these are all females that she's she's gonna kill. Yeah. So that's my pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean for me, at at this point, she's shown enough that what I'm really most interested in is the first time she runs into uh, again, you know, a Chikagian, a <laughs> I mean, Jessica Andrade, I, I think, has decided she's out of 125, but like a, a top five-ish person. I, I yeah. want to see what happens there. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking through just like list of fighters. What if it happened to Hannah Cyphers? Imagine <laughs> they bring Hannah Cyphers in. Next up at UFC 272 in the flyweight division, it is Tim Elliott versus Takir Ulambikov. Elliott, the 35-year-old Missouri native, is... 17, 12, and 1 overall. He is 6 and 10 overall in the UFC, which sounds dismal when I say it out loud. Slightly less dismal, but still not great, is that he is 4 and 6 in his current run in the UFC since joining out of the 24th season of The Ultimate Fighter, which, if you recall, was a season specifically put together to find a next title challenger for Demetrius Johnson. He won that. He won the opportunity to face Johnson, actually acquitted himself fairly well in a decision loss there. But nonetheless, uh, he's four and six in this current run. He is taking on Ulambikov. The 30-year-old Dagestani is 14 and one overall. He is two and zero since joining the UFC in October of 2020. He has uh, decision wins over Bruno Silva and Alan Nascimento. The most recent one, the Nascimento win, was at UFC 267 last October. Ulambikov is a comfortable favorite here. He is minus 250, where you can get uh, Elliott at plus 200 on the comeback. Keith, uh, again, I'll throw this to you for your pick first, but I'm going to throw the out here that I always feel as though Elliot is better than his UFC record reflects. And it's just partly a result of him. I, I mean, you can't get thrown into any deeper end of the pool than fighting Demetrius Johnson in your first fight back, but because he came back in a title shot, he's basically faced nothing but uh, fairly highly ranked contenders ever since. Uh, I mean, tell me the, 
Elliott is better than his record looks, and I'm not crazy, or tell me I'm wrong, and tell yeah, me if you fair. think he has much of a chance against Ulambikov. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, he has a very, like, Angela Hill run to him where, like, she doesn't have a great UFC record, but you're like, well, then look who she's fought. That's why she has so many losses. Or... And she's only been really run over by a few of them. Yeah. Otherwise, she's right there in all the fights, and that's another thing that's yeah, kind of sure. like Tim Elliott to me. Yeah, Elliott, it's funny because you mentioned he's got a, you know, a lot of fights in the UFC. He's he's really hard to read because he's such an unorthodox guy. Like he has this unorthodox striking style. He's constantly moving form and kind of bobbing and weaving with high, like insane volume, um, pressing an ungodly pace, winging arm shots, like winging outside shots where he kind of zaps his power, but it looks good because they kind of like whip at you. He loves to wrestle. He has a very funky style to his game where he just keeps his hips moving. Uh, just one of the guys, he almost is not looking for the takedown, more just looking to get a scramble going, and he's confident he's going to win those scrambles. Uh, one thing we've talked about is his fight IQ, that he he has a, besides facing killers, he has a, like a low fight IQ where he'll put himself in positions to lose. Like he'll chase a submission that just simply isn't there just because that's his game. He can't just control on top and, and land shot. All this other than like the Jordan Espinosa fight, he's, he's looking, I mean, that's cause he wanted to like talk trash to Espinosa when he was beating him up. But you know, he wants to go to an on bar or, or to look for some submission in a scramble. So, uh, Backed off. He's got he's got some connection with Habib. I think he's like a cousin. But I don't know if that's a real cousin or whatever. But again, Dagestan, a country with four million people and three last names. They're all <laughs> cousins, but he is a teammate. Yeah. Um. So he's he's a long and lengthy striker. He's a pressure striker, high output, good footwork. Uh, knows how to cut off the cage, which very few fighters can do well. He sets up a lot of his attacks using his feints. Works behind uh, a long jab. He's he follows with accurate power shots down the pipe. Throws a lot of combinations, hard calf kicks. Has has decent power too. I, I wouldn't say he's you know a big hitter for the division, but I'd say he's on the upper side. Uh, some things I don't like about him. He stands a little too tall. He leaves his chin wide open. Um, and Br- Bruno Silva did have some success because uh, kicking his legs because he doesn't really check leg kicks. Uh, and he was hurt. He was hurt. Like, his legs were hurt. But I think he showed how mentally tough he is to dig deep and get a win despite, like, hopping on a foot, like, early in the fight. Uh, he's a good wrestler. Upper body takedowns, trips. Those are the, really his his style. But he can shoot on the hips, drive through, smothering top pressure, strong takedown defense to try to take him down. If you do take him down, quick to pop up to his feet uh, with a you know, really good get-up game. He has six submission wins in his career he needs to look to pass the guard though when he's on top uh, he was almost submitted by nascimento in his last fight in from the guard position uh, but one thing i do like in his last two fights they were decisions but he showed he had the card to go hard all 15 minutes uh, so as far as prediction go in a in a weird sense both these guys tend to fight down to their competition and what i mean by that like elliot will lose fights to inferior opposition while Ulan Bektov, like he, he'll win a close fight, but it's against less talented fighters. Like neither one of these guys had these they blow out, you know, face a guy that's as good as them, and they just blow him out. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. I, I think stylistically, 
Ulan Bakhtov is just a really tough stylistic matchup for Elliot. He's he's more technically sound. He's much better on the feet. He should at least be able to match him on the ground with the wrestling, with the submission game. Uh, and he's he's also bigger. He's much bigger. He's, I mean, he's a big guy for the division. So, But based on Ulan Bakhtov's style, he's somehow going to still make this a really close fight, even though he's way better than – I think he's way better than, than Tim Elliott. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he sits back and lets Tim Elliott just outpoint him with just output. But overall, skill-wise, Ulan Bechtov is much better. So I'm going to say Bechtov by – I'm going to say raise a close split decision. I, I love that you pointed out the thing about Elliott's fight IQ. And I, I'm, always, I'm always hesitant to – just start speaking specifically about a fighter's fight IQ because someone who, who's I'm not a fighter or a coach myself. I always feel like I'm on thin ice there, but it's really easy with Elliot to point out that he will often just play right into his foe's best strengths. Because if you're a fighter like Elliot, who who is well-rounded, like if on the if in the video game you'd be like a six out of ten in everything, then your success depends on fighting your opponents where your six is better than whatever they've got. It's the difference between, uh, say, Vicente Luque and Alex Oliveira that we're going to talk about further up this card. Like, Luque is pretty good at fighting his opponents where his you know, strengths are the greatest, whereas Oliveira will just let himself get dragged into a fight where it's harder for him to win than it should be. That's Tim Elliott. Like, pointing out that he'll you know, shoot for takedowns or concede takedowns just to start a scramble because that's where he wants to be. That's a good instinct to have sometimes, but I th- I just think back to the Brandon Royval fight where he specifically lost that fight because he kept getting into scrambles with someone in Royval where scrambling is probably his best single skill. You know, if he had just made the fight boring and just like not conceded takedowns and just stayed on the feet, he probably would have taken the decision over Royval. Instead, he got choked out after getting kind of worked over on the ground. That's what I worry about against uh, Ulambikov, is that he might just oblige uh, the the kind of fight that Ulambikov wants. And I think Ulambikov is a better striker in general who does have some defensive lapses that Elliot probably won't be able to take advantage of. And on the ground, anything can happen in a scramble, and Elliot certainly is opportunistic, but Ulambikov is just, is really strong on the ground, and he's fairly opportunistic himself. I'm with you. Give me Ulambikov by decision, and it could be a, a razor-close splitter, or it could be really kind of one-sided, depending on how Elliot approaches it. I think he's the, I think he's kind of the variable here. We head now to the featherweight division for a matchup between Brian Kelleher and Umar Nurmagomedov. Kelleher, the 35-year-old New York native, is 24 and 12 overall. He's 8 and 5 in the UFC, which sounds pretty good on paper. That should be tempered with the knowledge that he is 3 and 2 at featherweight. Uh, he is coming in on the back of two straight wins, though. Those are unanimous decisions over Domingo Pilarte and Kevin Kroom. The most recent of those, the Kroom fight, was back in January at UFC on ESPN Cater versus Chikadze. He'll be taking on Nurmagomedov. The 25-year-old Dagestani is a perfect 13-0 overall. He's 1-0 in the UFC. Made his debut back in January at UFC on ESPN, Chiesa versus Magni, where he choked a fellow highly touted prospect, Sergei Morozov, all the way to sleep in the second round. Uh, coming into this fight, Nurmagomedov is the biggest favorite on the card. Well, 
yeah, he's he's the biggest favorite on the card. He is minus six hundred to minus six fifty. Kelleher, you can get around plus four fifty, plus four seventy five as the substantial underdog. Keith, Brian Kelleher is a scrappy dude, a never say die kind of guy. He has pulled out wins over favorite opponents in the past. This would be a tall order even by his standards. Either give me hope that he's going to pull it off or tell me that these odds are right where they should be. How does this fight go? Yeah, Brian Kelleher, he fits in that, like, Gerald Mershaw, Darren Elkins type category. Not to that extreme, but this one where, yeah, he shouldn't be there, but because of how crafty he is, he's going to be there. I mean, he's not a great athlete. I mean, I think he would say that. Uh, But... He can get counted out, and it's so crafty, he finds a way to win. Um, he's not really great anywhere, but he has, on the flip side, there's no glaring weaknesses to Brian Kelleher's game. Uh, he can fight out of both stances. He's high volume. He's a counter striker who draws out attacks with a lot of feints. Uh, plus power. Uh, he doesn't check leg kicks. That's one thing I don't like about him, but he's an above-average wrestler who somehow gets everything he can out of his wrestling. Like, he somehow finds a way to get the fight to the ground. Like, it wouldn't shock me if Ryan Keller took down Namagamadoff. I mean, taking down Namagamadoff's a feat, but, like, that's exactly, like, what, like, Brian Keller could do uh, because no one expects him to do it. Uh, he'll just find a way. He def- he makes a mistake of defending takedowns with a guillotine, but he's, like, one of the few guys that, man, when he jumps on that guillotine, he usually has it. Uh, he only needs a really small opportunity, and he ends the fight with that guillotine and, obviously, other stuff. Uh, other submissions. Now move on to Margaret Madoff. Again, Habib's cousin. Is he? Is he not? I don't know, but I know they say he is. He's a. The thing about jumps out to me about him more than anything. He's a great athlete, and he's very elusive, very light on his feet. Changes stances, can fight out of both stances. Uh, very um, almost like a karate style, uh, like bladed stance. Throws a lot of kicks. Uh, the kicking game is really his strength on the feet. But if he wants to wrestle, I mean, his last name is Demarco Madoff. Incredible entries on top, stays absolutely glued to his opponent. Everything you expect from a Dagestani covering the legs, Dagestani handcuff, all that stuff. Easily advances to position, hard ground and pound, has, I think, six submission wins. So he's a submission threat. Uh, he just does a really good job of secure the position, then do the damage, then look for the submission. So for prediction, I hate picking against Kelleher because he has surprised me a lot in the past. However, Namaga Madoff is better than him everywhere. I think Kelleher is going to try to jump on those guillotine. I mean, he might even get it as a scare at one point with that guillotine when Namaga Madoff goes for takedown. But I think he's going to spend the majority of his time on his back with Namaga Madoff just controlling, pinning him against the fence, frustrating him. I think the Madoff wins in a blowout. I think we see maybe at least one 10-8 round. Uh, Kelleher is so tough, and so I'm going to say he makes it to the decision, but I think it's going to be a one-sided affair. Madoff in kind of a blowout decision. I I don't have a whole lot to add to that. That's I think that's a great encapsulation of both of their styles and both of their tendencies. If you're looking for a Madoff to kind of categorize Umar with think of Usman Nurmagomedov who is fighting over in Bellator right now where yeah he's got the name and he's got the haircut but he 
he definitely presents as a striker by preference. Lots of kicks, and he has the kicking game of a guy who has no fear of being taken down. That you know, that that frees up an, a mixed martial artist to do certain things. Where you're like, I'll be able to fight off the takedown even if you catch my leg, or I don't care if you take me down because I'm going to sweep you immediately and just start kicking your ass. That's the kind of confidence that Umar uh, Nurmagomedov brings to the cage, and I agree with you. I'm not going to pick a finish of Kelleher because Kelleher has not been finished in a long time in the UFC, but this is going to be a whitewashing. And I would, I would almost, I would almost be willing to pick that there's going to be at least one 10, eight round. Like uh, you say with Kelleher, he's he's again, he's coming in off of two straight wins. His job is safe coming into this. So rather than the cut list, I expect that after this, event when you and I are breaking this thing down Saturday night, I'm going to put him on the cut some weight list because I do think that at featherweight, it's kind of an understated thing that he seems severely undersized against UFC featherweights, especially for a guy like he's short, kind of stocky and blocky. doesn't have much reach. He's, I, he didn't seem especially, he seemed kind of undersized even against some bantamweights he fought. Uh, and he really has seemed undersized and has been kind of pushed around by UFC level featherweights. I think really his best future lies at Bantamweight, but we can talk about that after this card if he fails to shock us, which I mean, it wouldn't be that big a shock, except that it might end up being one of the bigger upsets of the year in terms of the sheer numbers. Yeah, I just want to point out that one of the narratives on Keller before we got to the UFC was that he missed weight a lot at Bantamweight. But one thing I always say, he never got out of his comfort zone. He never left. Uh, is it um, Long Island? Maxim- it's uh, the- uh, Maximum BJJ, which is uh, okay. like, like Long Island, MMA, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he never left. He never went to like. I, I, I could be wrong, but like I don't think he went to the PI and things like that. Nope. So I wonder how you know he's training with like his brother. Uh, who has like a losing record in MMA and stuff like I, I don't know how how good his teams are in his camps to get him ready, but if he got with a specialist or something and got with a really professional team, not dogging his team at all, but I mean just I'm talking about these bigger teams would have been uh, you know. But in in fairness, he hasn't missed weight I don't think since he's got the UFC, so it was a problem. Somehow he found a fix. So good fun. Next up is a flyweight matchup between Marina Moroz and Maria Agapova. Moroz, the 30-year-old Ukrainian, is 10-3 and overall. She is 5-3 and in the UFC. Uh, more significantly, she is 2-0 and at flyweight. She started in the UFC at strawweight, went 3-3, and moved up to flyweight, and she is perfect since then, defeating Sabina Mazo and Mayura Bueno Silva. The most recent of those, the Silva fight, was in March of 2020, where she took a unanimous decision at UFC Fight Night Lee versus Oliveira. She'll be taking on Agapova. The 24-year-old Kazakhstani is 10-2 and overall. She is 2-1 and in the UFC uh, since joining as a veteran of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series. She actually lost on the Contender Series uh, and wasn't signed immediately, obviously. But she's in the UFC now where she has beaten Hannah Cyphers and Sabina Mazo, those two wins sandwiching a loss to Shayna Dobson in one of the biggest upsets in UFC history, at least in terms of the betting odds. The uh, Mazo fight, her most recent fight, was a third-round submission at UFC Fight Night Dern versus Rodriguez last October. Odds on this one, 
favor Agapova. She is minus 220. Moreau's plus 180. Uh, Keith, who have you got in this one? Well, let me let me ask you this question, and and not to get political or anything, but does Moroz live in Ukraine? Do we know that? Uh, Moroz, she lived in the in Ukraine for a long time. Yeah, she moved her training to America a year or for two sure? ago. But okay. yeah, but okay. the thing is, she hasn't fought in almost two years. So I actually yeah. don't know if she went back to Ukraine and. It's fair to ask whether what's going on there right now is a distraction yeah. to her. I mean, we're talking about in the headlines today, both Vladimir and Batali Klitschko are joining the Ukraine, like rejoining the Ukrainian armed forces. And I, I yeah, yeah. So like, no matter where you stand politically, like when I and I don't know enough about foreign policy, but that's badass. Like, yeah, like that's crazy. Like, just think of the world we imagine if if top male athletes in america join the military like i don't like imagine tom brady and lebron james or you know just yeah we join well, the military i mean like, uh, americans haven't done that on a large scale since world war ii when you had like you know yeah, ted williams yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah yeah that's a good point it actually did happen so yeah yeah good point but yeah, yeah not recently the, yeah, the last time it happened is the last time that america was attacked on its own soil by a foreign power like that's world war ii and that's yeah. you know people like ted williams like joining the, the the armed forces, but yeah, I think it's fair to ask whether one whether this this fight goes through at all. I mean, we're eight days out from fight night right yeah, now. Yeah, that's that's well. One thing I I put in my notes, I'm not sure this fight happens. One, she's been booked four times in a row, and she has had to withdraw four times, and mm -hmm. seems like that's been a ongoing thing with her. Like, I kind of forget about Morose for long periods of time because we haven't seen her, and then. I'm kind of shocked that she's only 30 years old because it seems like she's been in the UFC so long and such a long layoffs. Then add in this political climate, there's a very good chance. Well, we're recording that that she like I don't know what the travel restrictions are. Ukraine like that. I know there's like soccer teams trying to get out of the country and stuff. Like mm -hmm. I don't know, but if if she is in Ukraine or I hope she's safe. Most important than anything. Um, as far as her style, uh, what we've seen of her, she looked really good in her last fight. Um, yeah, you mentioned it was two two years uh, ago, so take it what you're worth. But high output striker, Muay Thai style. Um, when she's the Muay Thai style, she's more of a stationary target right in front of her in that same like almost mid-range, but tons of jabs. She lacks power, but she makes up for it with just kind of having high output. But I like that she targets the body. She really targeted the body in the last fight. She has some defensive holes. She backs straight up on the center line, uh, lacks head movement, which happens a lot with Muay Thai style, but a lot of calf kicks. She does check kicks, which I like. Uh, I think she's um, a little weaker in the clinch. She's not a physically imposing fighter. Um, she can get out muscled in the clinch, but she's got a good chin. I mean, she's been in some really good, fun fights. Like her fight against Myra Bueno Silva was a pretty good, like it was a barn burner, and she landed, she, you know. Silva landed some big shots on her. She just ate them and kept firing back with combinations. Um, and uh, she actually hurt Bueno Silva to the body. And that's not really, uh, you know, because she goes to the body. But it's not, she's not known for her power. Uh, she will look to wrestle a little bit. She kind of reaches for takedowns, which I don't like. But she'll time like a kick and just barrel through, build those through a kick to get on top. Strong top 
uh, top control, I think, with some really great ground and pound. She showed it again. Uh, I, the reason I keep bringing up Silva, I just rewatched that fight because recently and she looked good. Uh, good ground and pound, good cardio, and and strong takedown defense. Now move over to Agapova. Thing you, I love about Agapova, she's only 24 years old. <laughs> like I love that. Uh, Southpaw, not the most technically sound striker, but she has a lot of raw tools. And 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 sometimes I say raw tools. I want to make sure people know what I'm talking about. Raw tools are explosiveness, power, you know, not the X and O side. That's what she has. She she gets some pretty fast hands, but she can be pulled into the pocket where she likes to brawl. Uh, she makes a mistake, and I pointed this out last time. I'll say it again. She circles to her opponent's power. Yeah, she constantly she has this mistake of always circling to her her left, which would be her opponent's right. Um, she doesn't throw a lot of kicks, but she likes to get the fight to the ground. Similar to Moreau's, like she's more uh, looking to catch a kick and bull rushing over. Uh, but she will also s- shoot for takedowns, but she doesn't really set it up. Um, but she gets on top. She does look to advance from the top position, has some pretty good busy ground and pound. But defensively, she's not a strong defensive wrestler. She's just, I'd say she had weaker takedown defense. Uh, but if she's taken down, she's got a pretty good scramble game. And she also has uh, some subs from the bottom. As far as prediction goes, I think this fight is tough to call. Again, I really don't not sure if this fight even happens. I obviously I hope it does. Uh, but I would say Morose is the more polished fighter at this point in their career, but not as high of a ceiling. While Agapova is much more raw, needs much more growth, but has the higher ceiling. It's really hard to trust Moreau's due to her inactivity, but she looks really good at times. Like um, but then she also looks terrible at times. I'm I'm really torn. Like I think this should be a pick'em. I'm gonna go with the output and the technical skills of, of Morose. And I'm gonna actually gonna say that Morose is gonna pull a pretty big upset. And I'm gonna say she she pulls off a split decision win. Oh, you're so brave. Like I've spent all week kind of talking myself into the ways that Morose could win this because I agree with you on all points. Moroz looks like she should be much more physically imposing than she is. Like she, I mean, she was a specimen at 115. She's not undersized for flyweight and she has a good build for the division. But I agree with you that she gets overpowered in the clinch where you would think she would have a strength advantage, a leverage advantage being taller than most flyweights. But that's not really materialized. And she's taking on someone in Agapova that does tend to bully people around when they get their hands on, on each other. I would feel better about the upset pick if not for the, again, geopolitical distractions that are undeniable right now, if not for the fact that it's been a full year since uh, we've seen Moro's fight, or sorry, two full years since, since we've seen her fight. And she fought once in 2020, once in 2019, once in 2018, once in 2017. Like she's been incredibly sporadic. And that's, I think killed a lot of her upside because there was one point where she was the Maria Agapova division when she came in and like tapped out Joanne at the time Calderwood with ease and just announced herself as a, a striking new presence in the division. But a lot of that shine is gone just because she fights once a year. Uh, like I'd feel better about picking Moroz in the upset if not for all those factors. For Agapova, it's just a matter of getting down, beating an opponent that you're supposed to beat. It's it's hard to get past the visual of that loss to Dobson because ahead of that, 
I mean, she was doing like the cocky little dance and mugging for the camera. And 20 minutes later, she's literally getting stretchered out of the octagon. She's not getting stretchered out because she got knocked unconscious. She's getting stretchered out because she's too tired to stand. It was an embarrassing loss for on on multiple levels. Uh, and, you know, if you're a particular type of fan, particular type of media personality, it's gratifying to see, you know, the 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 person with the hubris and arrogance get humbled. I, I don't care about that stuff, but it is the kind of visual that sticks in your mind. So Agapova's next, or like her comeback win from that over Sabina Mazo, uh, I find that very heartening because all she did there was beat a person that she's supposed to beat and do it in an airtight, suffocating fashion that one never let Mazo really into the fight. Agapova won pretty much every minute of any round, every round there, right up until the finish, and proved that okay, yeah, I, I can manage my gas tank. I, I can fight three rounds, and at least as long as I'm winning, you know, so that I'm more or less dictating the pace. Uh, I, I've got three rounds worth of cardio. That also makes it tougher for me to pick Moroz uh, in the upset here. So I won't be shocked if it happens because, again, you know, Moroz is a skilled fighter. But give me Agapova by by decision here. And like you, I'll be slightly surprised that the fight even happens and mostly just hope that Moroz is safe and okay wherever she is. Next up is a light heavyweight matchup between Nikolai Negamarianu and Kennedy Enzichukwu. Nagamarianu, the 27-year-old Romanian, is 11-1 overall. He is 2-1 in the UFC. Lost his UFC debut to Saperbek Safarov all the way back in 2019. Has come back from that with back-to-back -back wins over Alexa Kamer and Ike Villanueva. The most recent of those, the Villanueva fight, was a first-round TKO at UFC Fight Night Costa versus Vittori last October. He'll be taking on Enzichukwu. The... No, sorry, the 29-year-old Dallas, Texas native is 9-2 and two overall. He is 3-2 and two, uh, since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he lost his debut to Paul Craig by third round triangle choke submission. Stop me if you think you've heard that story before. Came back from that with uh, three straight wins over Darko Stosic, Carlos Olberg, and Danilo Marquez before all the fun came to an end in another uh, another loss by finish, a first-round knockout at the hands of Da Eun-jung at UFC Fight Night Holloway versus Rodriguez last November. The odds are fairly close on this one, but Enzichuku is the slight favorite. He's minus 150, Negamarianu plus 130 as the underdog. Uh, I, I mean, my pick on this fight comes down to... Looking at two fighters that I don't have a whole lot of confidence in and deciding who I think is less likely to slip on a banana peel. Like, I feel kind of terrible saying that, but Nega Mariano, he, in a vacuum, he seems to have plenty of upside and plenty of ceiling. Like, uh, he's athletic. I think he's pretty fast moving, uh, powerful kickboxer. But right now, he's two and one in the UFC against borderline UFC talents in a lot of cases, like Saperbeck, Safarov, and much as it pains to say me, Ike Villanueva are just right on the bubble of UFC material or not. Alexa Kamer, despite having the same kind of upside by the eyeball test that Nega Mariano does, hasn't shown a whole lot in the UFC either. But him 
against Enzatuku, I'm just still waiting for Kennedy Enzatuku to put things together. Because, uh, I mean, you talk about, you, you've talked about raw skills or raw tools. He's got them. South of the Johnny Walkers of the world, he is one of the biggest light heavyweights on the planet. He's 6'5", and it's almost like an exaggerated version of John Jones, where his legs are skinny like Jones, but his up his upper body has even more muscle on it than Jones, who was you know surprisingly powerful upstairs for as as tall a light heavyweight as he is. Like he's a gigantic light heavyweight, has huge reach, has big power, uh, has good good instincts in the wrestling and the grappling sometimes, even if like the the overall skill set isn't there. But he doesn't leverage them well. Like he he got tapped out in the third round by Paul Craig in a fight in which he was beating him. And like, that's what Paul Craig does. And it's especially what Paul Craig did in 2018, 2019 when they fought. But nonetheless, that was him again, slipping on a banana peel in a fight that he was 45 seconds away from winning. And then more alarmingly, the Da Jung fight, Jung is a guy, he's about Nega Mariano's size where he's more of a squat tank built, Light heavyweight, he's you know five eleven, six foot tall guy, and nonetheless, Jung crowded Enzatukwu, was all over him, uh, and really just negated Enzatukwu's size and reach advantage, and that is exactly the kind of thing that Nikolai Negamariano's approach is built to do. There's always a possibility that Enzatukwu will put it all together, turn the corner, insert cliche of your choice here between the Jung fight and this fight, but I've been waiting for that for like two years now. I still haven't seen it happen. And so even though he's a slight underdog, give me Nikolai Negamariano in this one. And there's no reason to like pick the decision here because when Enzo Chukwu slips on a banana peel, he slips hard. So give me Negamariano to come out aggressive, probably crowd Enzo Chukwu, collapse the pocket, land short shots. Enzo Chukwu won't be able to get off like these just gnarly like five foot long head kicks and, and punches that he likes to throw. Give me a Nega Mariano by uh, TKO probably late in the first round. Yeah, this is so going down the card. I think this might be the fight I'm least excited about. Um, I'm not that high on either guy. And for all the reasons you said, um, and Chuku, he has that raw ability. You said like, he's one of the biggest light heavies I've ever seen. Um, you mentioned obviously skinny legs, but just, he has a frame of heavyweights. Like he's got like a lightweight's legs, but heavyweight's frame, upper body. Um, he doesn't just look like heavyweight. He looks like a big heavyweight. Uh, yeah. Uh, like Antonio Silva type kind of build. Uh, <laughs> he's got 82 inch reach. Uh, he has a bit of a slow starter, but when he gets it going, he can be a pressure fighter. Uh, high volume, just kind of marching forward, busy jab. He tries to follow that jab into the pocket to land some big shots, though he doesn't have the power that you expect he would have, though he didn't um, lace uh, Ulberg to his credit. But his chin is a big target due to him keeping it high in the air. He pulls it straight back, fights behind a high guard defense, um, which I have mixed mixed feelings about. Uh, But he does a lot of just moving forward behind pillaring, uh, which leaves him open to eat a lot of big shots. You mentioned uh, Don June just beating him up. Uh, did get the knockout uh, TKO, uh, so he's he can take a lot of damage. 
but when he get he has some of these tools like front kicks and stepping knees like just those kind of mean uh raw things that he has they they, they can really help him uh clinch is a strength because of he's so strong plump style knees and elbows i'd say he's a serviceable wrestler uh with heavy top pressure because he's so big good ground and pound he's got those like long uh, you know long where he can kind of sit up in someone's guard and still land like hammer fist due to his size but he's not a submission threat his takedown defense is bad though to his credit he can get up pretty easily because of his uh of his size Neger mariano a uh, bit of a brawler on the feet throws a lot of looping hooks uh, but due to his lack of technique, he doesn't starch many people. Now, I know you mentioned he knocked out Ike Villanueva. Uh, so maybe he's starting to come into his power. But I think that, I think that win speaks a little bit more on Villanueva than it does on Negan Mariano. Uh, he does back up straight up on the center line. Uh, he was he was hurt on the feet by Safarov, who really isn't known for his punching power. Uh, he, he did show he can grapple against Alexei Kamer. Uh, but he showed weak takedown defense against Safarov, struggled to get back up, but he does have three submission wins. So really, really tough call because I'm not high on either one of these guys. I am leaning towards um, Nchukwu based solely on just raw tools. He's bigger, he's stronger, uh, which is probably rare for Negan Mariano. As he's, uh, say what you want him, but he's a chiseled dude. Like he has that going for him. But uh, give me Nchuku just kind of maybe muscle him up a little bit. I, I say he gets a third-round stoppage. Give me, uh, yeah, third-round TKO. Next up is a strawweight matchup between Marina Rodriguez and Xiaonan Yan. Rodriguez, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 15-1-2 overall. She is 5-1-2 since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. She comes into this fight on a three-fight win streak, uh, those being Amanda Hibas, Michelle Watterson, and Mackenzie Dern. The most recent of those, the Dern win, was a unanimous decision in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 194 last October. She'll be taking on Jan, who will be looking to turn things around after her first UFC loss. The 32-year-old Chinese fighter is 13-2 with one no contest overall. She is 6-1 in the UFC. Again, won her first six fights in a row, making it all the way up uh, to a top-10 opponent in Claudia Gadelia before running into Carla Esparza and uh, suffering a second-round TKO loss. That was at UFC Fight Night Font versus Garbrandt last May. Odds on this one. Uh, pretty substantial in favor of the Brazilian. In favor of the Brazilian, she is minus three hundred. Jan plus two forty as the substantial underdog. I'm surprised by the odds on this one because yes, Rodriguez is coming in off of a three fight uh, win streak. Yes, Jan got beat really bad in her last fight, and because it was her first UFC loss after six straight wins. Uh, you know, it was especially impactful to, you know, anyone watching it. But the way that Jan lost to Carla Esparza is not something that Marina Rodriguez is going to do to anybody. Uh, and I was shocked by the outcome. Like, I mean, ben, I ben, think can I, I, can I... Can I jump in real quick? Please, Before go ahead. Move on. How freaking good has Carla Esparza looked recently? Amazing. I had written her off as a top-level strawweight. Like, for real. Like, I just rewatched that fight. 
she looked incredible in that fight. Gary, carry on. Sorry. No, no, she she looked incredible, and she exposed problems with Jan that nobody else had done. Jan coming into that fight, I mean, she'd fought Angela Hill, which, you know, Angela Hill, we already talked about her on this preview, even though she's not fighting this card, as someone who's probably better than the record looks, and with very few exceptions, is just right there in every fight. Like, nobody really just runs her right over, except for, like, a, a few you know, like kind of more fluky performances. Carolina Kovalkiewicz, which by that point, Kovalkiewicz was in complete decline. That was what we thought was going to be her retirement fight until she came back for one, you know, one one-off fight uh, last year. And then Claudia Gedalia, where again, it was a fighter, you know, like Gedalia is clearly on on in decline. But of those, neither Hill nor Kovalkiewicz was going to do what Esparza did. Gedalia could have, like she she has wrestled and just ground out opponents before, but that's not really what she does at this point. As far as exposed problems, because she so badly out-wrestled Jan and so badly mauled her when they were on the ground. Like, I feel weird saying this about a fighter who is, I, I mean, what is she, 13 and two, she's six and one in the UFC, but she looked like she'd never been put on her back before. She looked like she could barely defend a takedown and looked like she didn't really have the first clue what to do when someone was sitting in her guard and just elbowing her in the face and looking to pass. Like, Carlos Esparza completely mauled her, and that would give me pause if Jan were taking on another wrestler in this fight, but she's not. In fact, she's taking on about as opposite of that as you can get, as Rodriguez is one of the biggest Muay Thai purists in that division right now. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, even if, even if they were this were a matchup that were happening instead of the Esparza fight and Jan were just 6-0 in the UFC coming into this, I think I'd still favor Rodriguez. She's just, I, I, I think she is a more composed striker. She definitely is going to have the reach advantage, just throws straighter strikes. Uh, she can have trouble staying busy at all times. Like, she, she can be a high-volume striker when she wants, but also, like, she'll have lapses where just for, like, half a round, she just doesn't throw enough volume and leaves rounds closer than they really need to be. Uh, and against someone who can be as aggressive as Jan, that could cost her rounds that really she doesn't need to. But I'd, I'd still be leaning Rodriguez in this. Uh, and given what we've seen, I, I'm still leaning Rodriguez. I, I, I'm going to pick her to take a decision here because while Jan has been outstruck for stretches, like nobody's really hurt her badly on the feet. Uh, but I expect Rodriguez to just kind of piece her up, probably win... I, she might win all three rounds. She's going to throw enough volume. She's going to keep Jan at the end of her punches. If Jan comes in and crashes the, the pocket, Rodriguez is comfortable there as well. She is both an in and out Muay Thai fighter. Uh, I think this will be a fun one. Jan's going to be aggressive. She's going to have something to prove. Uh, but I think Rodriguez is going to be equal to the task. And considering that at least as of the time we're recording this, this is on the prelims. This has more divisional relevance than just about any other fight on the card. That's right. Are you going to be shocked if Rodriguez wins this comfortably and then she's fighting for a title in her next fight? It wouldn't take much. No. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I was going to say that this fight, you could argue that it could be the co-main event if you mm -hmm. go strictly by rankings. Uh, one thing that you talked about, you like you were surprised by the odds and, and you pointed out that Jan is not going to lose to Rodriguez the way she did to Esparza, which I totally obviously agree. Uh, what I was surprised is that they got matched up with each other to begin with, based on one coming off 
the worst loss in her UFC career. And the other one on this coming off probably the best win and and, and going on this great rise. So that was really surprising to me. I thought Rodriguez, I mean, you could make Rodriguez, make an argument that Rodriguez should already have the title shot mm-hmm. uh, or in a top contender matchup, just really just weird matchup. And, and, and really that quick, is. the other side of that is that if, uh, if yeah. Jan's like country woman and sometime teammate had not been champ, there's a good chance she would have already fought for a title at some point in that six uh fight run yeah well yeah especially being that i mean obviously she won but if you know in, in hindsight it's 2020 but if we go back to when jessica Andrade was a champion money people many people were not thinking my, myself alone saying like willie chung does not deserve this title shot she didn't do enough at that point i you know, i don't remember who did at that point that might have been a little bit of tatiana suarez and different things going on but uh yeah she might have got a fast track like like Whaley did so, um, as far as the matchup, even though it is not a matchup I expected, it'll be a fun affair. Right? You mentioned uh, their their styles. Rodriguez just she's big for the weight class on the feet, long and lengthy. She's quick. She's athletic. She's very aggressive. High output pressure striker. Huge power for the division. Attacks with combos. When she's when she's staying on the outside. Uh, hard, long leg kicks, kicks that land to the body, um, step-in knees. You said she's an in-and-out Muay Thai strike, which is a great way to describe her. You talked about Jan crashing the parking. Jan crashing the parking, that might not be a good idea because Rodriguez, when she gets in those strong – she's so physically strong, she gets in those close quarters, she lands some hard shots. She's really good at, like, framing, posting and framing, and then landing elbows inside – her Muay Thai plum clinch, uh, due to her size, is very good with her, her knee with her knees. Uh, she used to be a really bad wrestler, and her BJJ, I would say, was non-existent. I mean, you go back to like Cynthia Calvillo; she struggled against a fighter that I thought she was superior to, and Calvillo to get it from bottom. Obviously, Carlos Espaza, which lost. Um, what was it? was that? I'm trying to think. Was Espaza the draw? What was that? No, that was Cavio she got a draw with. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm yeah, so she has two draws in, in the UFC. Who was the other draw? Was it Asparta? Uh, let me check and make sure okay. before I, I say something. Yeah. No, Calvillo she definitely drew, drew with. That was the one where she won the first two rounds and Calvillo. Oh, the, the other one was Random Marcos. Oh, right. yeah. That's how random is that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, like, the Asparza loss has aged well. Yeah. Um, but things that are concerning, like, Kelvio mounted her in the fight. However, I thought she showed some tons of improvement on the ground. I mean, her offensive grappling still needs a lot of help. But, like, Mackenzie Dern and Michelle Waterson both struggled to get her to get the fight to the ground, and obviously they're both known for their grappling. Uh, and even though Mackenzie Dern did get her down one time, she couldn't sub her uh, in that one timeout, uh, one takedown, which is usually all she needs. So credit to her. I think uh, she's shown some improvements on the ground. Move to Jan. You did a really good deep breakdown of Jan's skills, uh, so I'm not going to add too much to it. But the thing just jumps out. He's just a very high output striker, very technically sound, good jab, fast, throws power shots down the pipe. You can. Uh, she has the ability to strike while backing up, which I like. She she's not a wrestler, but she did wrestle out wrestle Karolina Kovačević. Though as you mentioned, she really struggles with the defensive wrestling. Uh, Carlos Espaza 
took her down a whole bunch of times. Bef- the fight before that, Claudia Gadela took it down a couple of times. Uh, and she also struggled to get off the bottom from Esparza and got some ground and pound. You wonder how that's going to affect her moving, on, moving forward, taking that kind of damage that Esparza put it on her at the end of that fight. Yeah. Uh, as far as prediction goes, this should stay on the feet. It should be the fight that both fighters want. I don't see e- you know either fighter looking to get it to the ground. So Jan's, it comes down to Jan's technical skills versus Rodriguez's power and clinch game. Uh, you mentioned that Jan's just output could win in the fight, and I actually totally agree. That's the, that's the route to win if if Rodriguez just lets her bank rounds. However, I'm going to go with Rodriguez. I think it's going to be back and forth. Fair, and Rodriguez just has that power. She has the ability to end it with one shot. And, and I actually think she's going to do that. I think uh, I think Jan's going to give her that kind of fight. So give me. I think if Rodriguez going to land a big shot, that she's going to follow up with some uh, shots when Jan's down. I think she's going to get a second round TKO. And I think that he. She's got such an impressive performance that she's going to sail herself a title shot with this. Next up, a lightweight matchup between Jalen Turner and Jamie Malarkey. Turner, the 26-year-old Californian, is 11-5 overall. He's 4-2 in the UFC since joining out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. Significantly, he is 3-1 since dropping down from being a large welterweight to being an absolutely titanic lightweight. Uh, he lost his lightweight debut to Matt Frivola, which I quipped a couple of weeks ago, went exactly like you would expect a matchup between a steamroller and a tarantula to go. Since then, however, he's turned it around, turned it around with three, three straight finishes over Josh Kulabau, Brock Weaver, and most recently, Urosh Medic, whom he choked out in the first round at UFC 266 last September. He'll be taking on Malarkey. The 27-year-old uh, Australian is 14-4 and four overall. He is 2-2 two and two in the UFC. Lost his first two, those against uh, Brad Riddell and Ferez Zayam. He's turned it around since then with a couple of knockout wins over Kama Worthy and Devontae Smith. The most recent of those, the Smith win, was at UFC Fight Night Santos versus Walker last October. Odds on this one, very close. Turner is the slightest of favorites. He's minus 125. Malarkey available right now at even money or even plus 105. Uh, Keith, these are a couple of lightweight prospects who are still in their mid-20s. And while I would say neither of them is anything close to a complete product, they've both shown really impressive flashes of brilliance. Uh, Who gets it done and how? Yeah, absolutely. I love this fight. Um, I, I, it's one of those ones where I love and hate because I, I, I like both guys' skill sets, so I, I didn't want to see the guy lose, but stylistically, it's going to be a really, really fun affair. I just want to point out, I'll, I'll say this every fight, I thought Jamie Malarkey beat for us, Zion, uh, Zayim, however you say his name. Um, it was a really fun fight, and, and that's the guy I like too. But uh, yeah, as, as far as these two guys, I think both have bright futures. Jalen Turner... It, I mean, obviously, he's an extremely big guy, long, lengthy, six foot three, seventy-five inch reach. Uh, he's a great striker, uses his length really well, has serious power, but he only unloads when he sees openings, which saves his energy. He's very composed. He's obviously best from range because he's got he's got good snap on his punches. He um, holds back to help him, you know, conserve his his energy, um, and then. Throws a lot of kicks, kicks to the body, uh, really quick, like front kick, high kicks. So easy for him based on his height. Uh, he can make the mistake of 
holding his ground though and throwing down in the pocket and kind of giving up that inside and, and allowing you know trusting his chin too much. Uh, defensively, uh, all grappling wise, defensively he's a weak defensive grappler. Um, though he and I'd say I say he's a weak wrestler altogether. Though he did get takedowns in back to back fights, which I like that, especially at a young age. When we talk about like when guys at a young age and you see new skills, that might not be an outlier. That might be a thing they've added to the game at that age. And, and that's something where we could we could have talked about Jan Turner, a weak wrestler before, and and later on he's taking out top ten guys and using wrestling. So. Uh, but we, what we've seen, what we have seen, he's a weak defensive wrestler, uh, struggles to get back up though. He does look for subs off his back. Triangles are kind of like easy for him due to those long legs. And, and he did get a submission in his last fight, but I'm a little worried about his chin though, as he has been rocked and knocked out, um, three times already in his young career. Move out to Jamie Malarkey. Um, he's everything. Jalen Turner is, he's unathletic, but he, I shouldn't. So let me say that he, he doesn't have the raw tools Jalen Turner has because there's a lot of things I want to say nice about Malarkey that's true about Turner. So I don't want to say the complete opposites, uh, but he just makes up with insane toughness. Malarkey, uh, he's kind of slow, but his pressure is, is a serious thing. I mean, you look at Devontae Smith, who's someone who's much more talented than, than Jamie Malarkey on paper, and Malarkey just beat him with pressure, like mentally beat him. Um, he showed in Brad Riddell, who I know we're both really high on, ability to take a beating and just keep coming forward and making the dogfight against someone that he's outclassed against. I love that he work, constantly works the body. I would say he's got plus pocket, uh, plus power when he gets into the pocket and loads. I mean, he almost knocked out and knocked out and subbed Brad Riddell in their fight, in, in a fight that he got blown out. Uh, I mean, he did knock out Kama Worthy and, and Devontae Smith in back to back fights. And I know those are TKOs, but. Um, Targets calf kicks. He's an underrated wrestler. He chains takedowns together. He's absolutely relentless to get the fight to the ground uh, with his pressure. Uh, not smothering time control is so something probably he needs to improve, but he has the cardio to get the takedown over and over and over again. So he, while he might not take hold them down, he's got the cardio to just keep getting the takedowns. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, as far as prediction goes, this is one of the toughest ones. This one I, I have flip-flopped on. This, despite a huge gap in raw skills, uh, Turner is a much more skilled fighter. But I just love Malarkey's style. He beats guys with his brain. Uh, he And he's only 27, too. Like, he seems like he, he looks like he should be 37. But... <laughs> um, uh, I think I think he finds a way to crash the pocket against Turner. I think he gets inside. I think he lands in some decent shots of his own. But more important, I think he forces Turner back against the fence. He gets takedowns. He avoids the submission attempts. He lands ground and pounds, and he just keeps the pressure, never giving Turner any space. Give me Malarkey in a little slight upset. Give me Malarkey by decision. Well, I thought I was going to be the only one picking the upset on on this one. <clears throat> I have the feeling that the way these two guys are headed, if I'm right, this is a matchup that wouldn't even be made two years from now. Because I expect that Turner will be in a different place competitively in the division than Malarkey is. Agreed. Because <clears throat> Malarkey is, is kind of already growing into the best expression of what his tools will afford him. Where Turner, <clears throat> I mean, there's bust potential. I mean, he might be out of the UFC two years from now, but he also might be like deeply into the top 10 two years from now. But 
this is if you're Jamie Malarkey or you're a fan of his or a member of his team, this is the perfect time to catch Turner because Turner is starting Agreed. to put things together. Like the ground game that he flexed against Uroš Medic in his last fight, where he just completely dominated a good grappler on the ground, just yeah. dominated him. And yeah. I picked Medic to win that fight. And part of it was so that the Anchorage BJJ guys wouldn't like fly down and come find me at my house. But part of it is <laughs> that I, we do love those guys. Hey, I, I don't know if you're watching this when your homie isn't fighting, but uh, but I thought Medich was a more complete product at the time, it, you know, and one of the few lightweights that can at least rival Turner's side because he's a gigantic lightweight too. But Turner just made it look like they were just two like two complete levels apart, like didn't belong in the same promotion. Uh, but I. I still keep going back to the his first fight at lightweight against Frivola. You pointed out that his chin can be vulnerable sometimes, and that's probably part of what must be a huge weight cut for him. But also, Frivola completely steamrolled him, which, you know, again, ha-ha. But even though he was losing the fight, he was losing it worse in the third round than the first. Frivola was rolling downhill on him, and Turner was getting tired and frustrated and just running out of ideas. And... That is exactly the kind of thing that a Jamie Malarkey can take advantage of, just with his relentless pace, just his incredible toughness, his good cardio. If, if Turner starches Malarkey in the first round or they go to the ground and Turner just completely overpowers him and takes his back, takes his neck and chokes him out, I'm not shocked. That's my second most likely outcome from this fight. But if it gets to the end of the first round, I'm really picking Malarkey because he is exactly the kind of guy that's going to give Turner fits yeah. in the same way that Frivola did. And for that reason, I'm with you. I'm picking Malarkey in this one. And if I had to make a specific pick, this is a fight where Turner wins the first round handily, not quite 10-8 handily, but really wins it soundly and then yeah. loses the second and third. And you're like, oh, man, the third is almost a 10-8 as well. That, that's my pick for this fight. Give me Malarkey by decision in the slight upset. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it too. Like he's gonna have to weather an early storm and then take over the way he does. Yeah, that that's a great breakdown. Next up is a heavyweight matchup, the only heavyweight matchup on the card, unless uh, Jacoby or somebody misses weight incredibly badly. But as scheduled, the only heavyweight fight on this card, as currently scheduled, a week out from fight night, the main card opener. It is Sergey Spivak versus Greg Hardy. Spivak, the 27-year-old Moldovan, is 13-3 overall. He's 4-3 in the UFC. He did lose his last time out. It was a first-round TKO loss to Tom Aspinall at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Till last September. That put the brakes on a three-fight win streak for him over Carlos Felipe, Jared Vandera, and Alexi Olenek. He'll be taking on Hardy, the 33-year-old Tennessee Native by way of Ole Miss University, by way of the Dallas Cowboys, by way of uh, Coconut Creek, Florida, is seven and four with one no contest overall. He's four and four with one no contest since joining the UFC out of two appearances on Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, his He is on a two-fight losing streak right now. Those are both TKO losses to Martin Tybura and Tai Tuivasa. The most recent of those, the Tuivasa loss, was last July at UFC 264. Odds on this one, uh, Spivak a moderate favorite. He's minus 210, Hardy plus 175. Uh, I have underestimated 
Sergey Spivak almost since he stepped into the UFC. Stepped into the UFC, a kind of medium-sized heavyweight that was, yeah, he was undefeated. He was like 7-0 or 8-0. But two of his last three wins had been over Tony Lopez and Travis Fulton. And I was like, dude, if you get into the UFC on the back of wins over Tony Lopez and Travis Fulton, even at heavyweights, you're probably not ready for prime time. And when he got starched by Walt Harris in like 30 yeah. seconds in his uh, debut, I was like, well, this is going to be a quick experiment. And instead, he has turned into a, a he is a, a comfortable gatekeeper to the top 10 in the UFC heavyweight division. He doesn't lose bad fights anymore. Like since and it's not like the Harris loss was a bad fight. Walt Harris is going to be knocking some people out in the first round for as long as he wants to hang around. But his other losses are to Martin Tybura, who's just kind of a better version of the same fighter, and Tom Aspinall, who, I mean, I think of him as a future title challenger at least and possibly a future champ. There's no shame there. And everyone else, he's he's handled them. Uh, I underestimated everything about him. Like, I underestimated his skills. I thought his striking was worse than it is. I thought his ground game was worse than it is. I always underestimate how big he is. Because, you know, he'll weigh in around 238, 240, 242. But he doesn't give up significant size to most of the guys he fights. Uh, he's taking on a guy in Hardy. Okay, Hardy is one of the few guys he that he does give up significant size to. Uh, something to keep in mind if you're watching this and you're a newer fan, there is a difference between UFC heavyweights that weigh in at 265 pounds. Because there are the guys that walk around at 265, and there are guys that walk around at 290 and cut weight. Hardy has been both earlier in his career. He was in better shape. Like he was a, he looked like a fit 275 that cut some water weight to make the limit in his most recent, like his last fight, his loss to uh, his losses to, to Ivasa and Tybura. He looked a little softer. He looks like a guy who's walking around 10 or 12 pounds heavier of not especially quality weight and having to cut hard to get to 265. And it has cost him because if you're that big, Gas is always going to be a concern, no matter whether you have a lot of fat or a little fat. Like, just the human body isn't meant to pump blood to keep that much muscle oxygenated for 15 or 25 minutes of, of hard exertion. But, you know, no matter how fit you are, no 265-pound heavyweight has great cardio. But Hardy's has gotten especially bad. He's not a prospect anymore. Like, at this point, I mean, I I haven't looked at the whole chart the whole list of all you know 36 UFC heavyweights but I bet he's in the upper half of number of appearances in the UFC this is going to be his 10th fight in the UFC he's definitely in the upper half he's not a prospect anymore he is in the UFC and whether you think he belongs in the UFC or not for the out of cage reasons he is in real danger of showing he doesn't belong for the in cage reasons because the things he's good at have sharpened Somewhat, you know, he's become a little more composed of a striker. He doesn't just run across the cage like winging, uh, you know, butterfly net hooks anymore. He has a little bit more of a diverse striking arsenal. But the things that are wrong with him have not gotten a bit better. Uh, in his loss to Martin Tybura uh, back in December 2020, which is his second to last fight, I will never get over uh, Sherdog play-by-play guy Jay Petrie's description of his ground game. He looked like a turtle who had been flipped over in his shell. And for a guy that's been training at American Top Team for like four or five years now, that has 10 fights in the UFC, just to have no apparent idea what to do when he's put on his back, that's, I mean, that that's a death sentence. 
and that is exactly the kind of thing that Sergei Spivak will test him on immediately. Spivak is no dummy. He does generally fight to his best advantage. So while he could win a slugfest with Hardy, why would he engage in it? I expect Spivak yeah. to either clinch and run Hardy to the fence and look for, like, to just wear him out there and then look for a takedown, or to shoot one of his ugly uh, shots from the outside. But either way, I think Spivak's going to try to take this thing to the ground within the first 60 seconds. And he, while he could get knocked out, Hardy could just shuck him off with his incredible, enormous strength and then, like, head kick him. Uh, I expect that Spivak will get this to the ground sooner than later. And once they're down there, it's it's all over. Spivak, take him down, probably take him down in side control, step out of him out, and elbow him in the head until this thing is over. Give me Sergei Spivak by first round TKO on the ground. Yeah, I just, yeah, he talked about Greg Hardy's ground game. And I just think, like, he's at America. He said, oh, he's been at America's top team for 10 fights now. Like, he should be better on the ground. I just, I just, I just picture, like, Steve Mako walking in the room, be like, all right, guys, time for wrestling <laughs> practice. And like Greg Hardy and Anla and Song just like sneaking out the back and like holding pads for each other in like the <laughs> other room while everyone else is wrestling. Because Anla and Song's got something he's been with American Top Team, but his wrestling sucks too. <laughs> um, so Angla also looks like he weighs 280 pounds, only with him it's all muscle. Yeah, like, maybe dude. they're like, maybe they go into like the weight room or something. <laughs> Some room. Well, they're, you know, our, our, <laughs> Greg Hardy's like that's the time he's like oh my back hurts I gotta ice I gotta ice something every time it's wrestling practice or so I don't know um, let me ask you this before we before I give my breakdown of, of them do you think the UFC's done with Greg Hardy like they're like they're experiment they kind of it's old news kind of I think so because right now there's not <laughs> even enough heat to make him a villain like his first yeah. four fights where people were and myself included like I wrote two op-eds just saying Greg Hardy doesn't belong in professional mixed martial arts. Like if you have sure. that big a, a problem managing violence in your private life, you don't deserve to be in the violence business professionally. Like sure. go do something else. But here, like even that heat's kind of gone. And now he's just another heavyweight in the UFC. He's not the worst. He's better than, uh, he beat Jorgen DeCastro, but yeah. he makes literally eight, he makes enough money to, to hire eight guys off the contender series. Don't you think the UFC would rather have eight random heavyweights off the contender series right yeah. now and hope one I of them do. pans out? I do because he doesn't have a fan base, and like obviously he's always gonna have certain people hate him. But it's like you mentioned, it's it's not. I mean, where it's fight week, and who's talking about Greg Hardy right now? And then, but what really stands out to me is who they're matching him against. They're matching him against grapplers like Spivak's replacing Alexia Winnick, who was originally the opponent. Is there? Yeah. I mean, I I get the thinking. The thinking is if and the fight ends quick, no matter what, either. These guys take him down and submit him, or he lands the big shot, puts these guys out. Like, I get it. Yeah, at uh, least we get a, a highlight out of it, you know. Yeah, but. yeah. But it, it seems like there was a time where they needed Greg Hardy to win or to be this evil villain. Dude, and they, they signed Dmitry Smolyakov that was like 0-3 in the UFC just to give him someone he could beat. Yeah. And that's his – that dude, that's less than three years ago. That's April of 2019. They re-signed Dmitry Smolyakov just to find somebody that Greg Hardy could beat. Yeah, I just think like all the things. The, it, it didn't work out perfect for the UFC, but if if he was winning and was getting knockouts, and then he got to Tio Voss, like you know the Alan Crowder DQ and the uh, who was he fighting when he had the inhaler gate? Ben Sassoli. Yeah. Ben Sassoli. Like if he had all these wins, he never took the short notice fight against Volkov. All these, and he it never fought 
Tybor, and he was eight, seven, eight, or no, whatever. And then he fought two of Austin, who Vasa got that knockout like that. How much bigger it was would have been then. Yeah. Um. So I, I get there's not much upside to him right now. So you mentioned he's an absolute. Like I've I've met him in person, and again, uh, he he's a like ridiculously he's he's built different than mm-hmm. other MMA fighters. He's he's obviously an elite athlete. When you're an all pro defensive end in in the NFL, uh, he's explosive. He's got big big power. Uh, he, you mentioned he has refined some skills. He's got a decent jab. Um, he's he showed some good feints, uh, um, decent head movement. He throws hard kicks, both the legs into the body. Uh, his but kicks he's got, are scary. Huh? His kicks are scary. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he's he's got defensive end linebacker legs. He's got. <laughs> You know, I'm sure that guy has spent a lot more time in the squat rack than most heavyweights have. You know, or doing uh, what do they call those box or pushing jumps. the sled? Yeah, yeah or box jumps, the sled. Like, yeah. yeah, all those like explosive movement uh, like moves. Uh, but you mentioned he's not a prospect, and I agree with that. But he fights like he's a prospect, like he's still kind of learning on the job, and he makes holes that should be cleaned up by now. Like he does keep his chin high in the air. He gives his hands either they're low or they're wide. They're never like close to his face. Uh, he backs straight up when he gets attacked. Volkov showed that you can hurt him to the body. Now, as far as the grappling goes, he's so physically strong. He can just throw up on it. like, I, I know this is going way back, but I always say it like he did throw Juan Adams. Say what you, I mean, Juan Adams comes from a wrestling background and is also a massive dude. And he threw, him. um, he showed some kind of top control against Maurice Green. He also has the, he had this thing that kind of faded when he when he went against Volkov and others, where he just had this intimidation factor. It seemed like some guys were just kind of intimidated by him. Um, you said he doesn't come out throwing these wild haymakers anymore, which is true. I don't know if that's a good well, thing. Like, it, it's no longer all he has. All he has. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, sorry, I, I miss yeah. I miss yeah. quoted you. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a good thing. In a weird sense, I, I, hear me out. In a weird sense, this berserker aggression is hard to handle, and he has the explosiveness. Well, obviously, you want to develop skills, but he there was a set guys, and I'm sure every one of those guys he could still beat by being more technically sound. But there was just a pure aggression, elite athlete exploding, coming at you, throwing bombs that beat guys. Guys weren't ready for. Um, yep. I mean, Francis Ngano was knocking guys out with that style when he wasn't technically sound, when he was throwing looping wild shots. Now, I'm not obviously I'm not trying to compare Greg Hardy to the heavyweight champion of the world, but you get my point. Um, as far as his ground game, serious ground and pounding on top, but Tuitaibora showed how easily he can get taken down. He's terrible on his back, as Jay Petri mentioned, um, and then. You got to stop worrying about his chin. I mean, you figure all the hits in football, you know, he probably has a couple of concussions between high school, college, the pros. Um, I don't know if he did after the pros, did he play like arena or anything like that? Or did no. he go right? Okay. Went right. to MMA. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, all those blows, and then you got knocked out cold by two of us. You got to worry about that. And then over Spivak, last fight I said, I forget what was it. Uh, I said they're not. I'm trying to know which fight we just did. 
where I said the fighter isn't the complete opposite. Spivak is the complete opposite of Greg Hardy. He's not athletic at all. He's flat-footed. Um, he works a basic jab on the feet. So those basic combinations, one-twos. Uh, we'll throw some kicks. Nothing like jumps out you. Defensively, he kind of covers and pillars to defend shots. Uh, no movement. I mean, Carlos Felipe was piecing him up with a jab. Uh, but he wants to close the distance. Well, Hardy wants to step back and throw bombs. Spivak wants to close the distance, work inside, get inside the clinch. Uh, good takedowns. He can shoot for a heavyweight. He can uh, drive through. Uh, he loves, like, getting in close and just kind of snatch single, um, running the pipe. Uh, he'll grind against the cage if he doesn't get the takedown just to kind of slow his opponent down. Uh, I've seen him do some lateral drops, which I, I don't like at this level, but it has worked for him. Uh, he's got solid ground and pound, and he has six submission wins. So as far as prediction goes, it's so lazy to say this, but it really is the way it goes. It's either going to be Hardy catches him, clips him in the first two or three minutes, or Spivak closes distance, gets fight the ground, and, and finishes him, whether ground and pound or, or submission. I'm going to go with the latter and say Spivak gets the fight to the ground, that he gets it quickly, he gets a submission, and I'm going to say he su- submits him in the very first round. There you have it. Two picks for Sergey Spivak to finish this thing in the first round. The only point of dissension is whether it is a knockout or a submission. We now head to the welterweight division for a matchup between Kevin Holland and Alex Cowboy Oliveira. Holland, the 29-year-old Texan, is 21-7 and with one no contest overall. He is 7-4 and with one no contest since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, this will be his debut at middleweight or at welterweight in the UFC, uh, having made his uh, impression so far at middleweight, including a year in which he was uh, Sherdog's breakthrough fighter of the year uh, for fighting five times and notching some incredible wins. Uh, he'll be taking on Oliveira, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 22-11 and one with two no contests overall. He's 11-9 and nine with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, he is 9-7 and seven with one no contest at welterweight because he did used to be a guy that bounced back and forth between lightweight and welterweight, but he actually hasn't fought at lightweight in the UFC since November of 2015 when he fought Peter Hallman. So it's been a long time that he's settled in at welterweight, and uh, he will be there to welcome Holland to the division. As it stands, the odds pretty heavily favor Holland to have a successful debut. He's minus 250, Oliveira around plus 200 or plus 205. Uh, Keith, Oliveira, he is what he is at this point. He's the father of 312 children, and he is a pretty good test for kind of whether you belong in the UFC welterweight division and certainly whether you belong in the top 15. Uh, how does this fight go? How do you see it? Uh, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, I heard that Holland might be one of his children too. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by uh, Kevin Holland. They moved down a weight class. I think is the one that we were calling for. I really feel like Holland might be just one of these guys where he he might be just a tweener, where he probably would, the best weight class would be, would be like 175 or 180. I just I mean he's yeah he's tall he's long and lengthy I wonder how the weight like I know he walked way under 185 so it might be no big deal but I'm just I, I, I'm interested in that um, what we see from Kevin Holland 
tons of movement, got some nice zing on his shots, uh, but he throws some weird angles from his hips. He likes to be all the way in, all the way out. Uh, he'll like sit back, and when he's sitting back on the outside, jabbing, push kicks, but then suddenly he'll quickly crash the parket, and he covers distance. We talked about this before. He covers distance so quickly because due to his length, one step and he's halfway across the cage. He's accurate. Um, I would say underrated power. Defensively, I like some of the things he does defensively. He really rolls with punches really well, very similar to um, what Israel Adesanya does. A good example of, of that was um, Bellator was on, and Jordan Lugo was fighting against uh, Brian Moore, and he was really flowing and rolling with punches, something that Holland does. Holland also, and I've, I've pointed this out in the past, that it, it impresses me. He's been, had so many professional fights that it keeps him relaxed. Like when he gets hurt and he gets blasted, he doesn't go into like rush panic mode. Um, he likes to grapple in, in the clinch area, gets in close, these elbows, likes to like slap ears, which is just like a mean, nasty, but like tough thing. Uh, nice knees in the clinch due to his height. He will look for a takedown, though he isn't much of a wrestling threat. I'm sure, like, yeah, he can out-wrestle guys on the internet, but in in the UFC, uh, you know, he, he's got some defensive holes. I mean, you go back to, like, Marvin Vittori exposed how his defensive wrestling. Derek Brunson exposed his defensive wrestling. But he is a submission threat, though um, he – how do I say this? He – all right, well, he – I want to say something else, but I'm leaving it out. He 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 can be a, uh, very aggressive on the ground, but his skills as a BJJ pr- practitioner, I actually think hurts him. Like I think he'd be a better fighter if he was a worse submission artist because he'd have more panic to get back up. Um, and I also think I think his grappling is not as good as, as he thinks it is, because I mean Kyle Dawkins was out grappling. Like everyone remembers the. Uh, the knockout and the clash of heads and all that, but do you forget that Dawkins was winning that fight when it happened? Mm-hmm. You know, he was like Dawkins was the one who got saved by the clash of heads. And not that I'm saying Holland got saved, but things were going well for him, especially on the ground. And I was looking up the UFC stats. And you know, I don't like to look up the stats because I know that stats can be manipulated. But in about three minutes of ground, Kyle Dawkins had three submission attempts on him. So, um, I don't think his grappling is as good as he thinks. Anyways, uh, move on to Oliver. He's a good athlete. He's always been elusive. He always hits hard. He, he can be aggressive at times. Very unorthodox style. Kind of similar to Kevin Holland where he's long, lengthy arms and he throws some weird angles. Um, he gives his hands low, uh, kind of to his side. Uh, long From the outside, long jab. Kind of throws looping hard shots when he gets to, to the pocket. He loves to engage in a, in a brawl and kind of just hold his ground and just wing haymakers. Uh, from the outside, tons of kicks, teep kicks, body kicks, calf kicks. He loves the spinning attacks, which he, though he doesn't have much success with them, uh, he'll throw like flying flying knees. Stepping knees are, are, are a strength of his. He's very physically strong, hard to take down, good takedowns himself, good ground and pound. But cardio has been an issue in the past, especially recently. I mean, cardio was was a big issue in this fight against Nico Price. He did not look good in that fight. And and he looks like he's lost a step over the last couple of fights. Now, sure, like, uh, Shafgat is – that fight loss has aged extremely well. But overall, 
Oliveira looks like he's down, you know, end of his career. So I think Holland is a terrible stylistic matchup for Oliveira. Um, yeah, Holland's more explosive. He's he's also unorthodox. He moves on his feet well. He can probably match Oliveira there on the feet. Um, if Oliveira is smart, he closes distance and tries to grind the clinch, get some takedowns. I just don't think he has the cardio to do that for 15 minutes. I think Holland is going to pick him apart from range until he lands one of the big shots. And I actually think based on Oliveira's starting to get rocked a lot more, I think Holland, who has rocked some pretty good strikers in the past, I think Holland puts him out. I'll see he does in the second round. Yeah. I mean, Holland has had some severe ups and downs in the UFC. He was Cherdog's 2020 breakthrough fighter of the year. He went 5-0 and in the year of COVID and, you know, had some star-making moments, like, you know, the Jacare fight, and then went 0-2 in 2021 and could have been 0-3 because, as you pointed out, uh, the, the the fight against Kyle Dawkins was not going his way, but it really exposed the problem. Brunson and Vittori grounded him out and just kind of won decisions on the ground. And I completely agree with you that Holland's submission ability worked against him there because he was he was comfortable to just kind of close his guard, open his guard, work for a Kimura. Just he was too comfortable being on his back and losing rounds against both Brunson and Vittori. Uh, against Dawkus, it was a little more of an active thing because Dawkus was looking to submit him, not just camp out on top and and stay busy. Moving down to 170, the best wrestlers at 170 are probably going to be able to do to Holland the same thing that Brunson and Vittori did. So I don't think this is a cure-all for the things that went wrong for him at 185, but he's going to get some good wins there. And I'm with you. This is a bad matchup for Oliveira because Oliveira actually can wrestle. And he used to be a very good and somewhat underrated grappler. I think that slipped away a little bit because more than anything else, what I see from Oliveira is he is a fighter in physical decline. He's only 34, but he's coming up on 40 fights overall. He's coming up on like 25 fights in the UFC. He's been blown up by a grenade. He does have like nine kids. And as Mickey, the trainer from uh, the Rocky movies said, women weaken legs. By that standard, Oliveira should <laughs> so probably be. Types. Yeah, th- there you go. By those standards, Oliveira should probably be like allowed to park in the handicap spots at the apex because uh, his legs are all the way weak. But he is a fighter in physical decline at this point. And I'm with you. And I could even see Holland tapping him out because Oliveira has all of a sudden started looking slow and vulnerable on the ground. And while Holland is not a lockdown grappler, he's a very opportunistic one with long arms and legs. So. I could so, totally see it being a TKO or just a really dominant decision. I could also see in a scramble like Holland getting like a topside guillotine or a Bravo choke or just one of those man with long arms type chokes on him. So I'm going to step out a little on a limb and call call for that. But give me Holland by second round submission. But I think this should be pretty much one way traffic for as long as it goes. Yeah. Speaking of Oliver and all those kids, I I would love if Oliver had like a George Foreman thing going where he just named all his kids the same name. <laughs> and and, he, and he, he just named them all cowboy too, like cowboy, cowboy. <laughs> just, uh, one thing you mentioned that, that really stood out to me was you said Kevin Holland moving down to welterweight is is not going to answer all his problems, but and the guys who can wrestle your 
Usman's, your Covington's, your Leon Edwards, they're still going to be able to out-wrestle him. The one advantage he does have is, yeah, he's going to have to stop the technical skills of the wrestling, but he's not going to be giving up that mass. Like, besides being taken out, he's not going to have that huge guy, Marvin Torre, Derek Brunson, who's so much bigger than him. He's not going to have that going against him. So that is that, that, That's a good point. I mean, we're about to talk about Colby Covington, but, yeah, Colby Covington could probably take Kevin Holland down with ease if they fought, but as an undersized welterweight, would he be able to just comfortably hold him down and just win rounds without yeah. breaking a sweat? Like, Colby Covington's a better wrestler than Derek Brunson. Sure. But... Derek Brunson being on top, you must be much worse than Kobe Company when you're an undersized middleweight. Yeah, absolutely. Next up at UFC 272, and as the card is currently constituted, third from the top of the main card is a featherweight matchup between Edson Barboza and Bryce Mitchell, which is an interesting matchup, something unexpected, at least as of a couple years ago, and about as much of a pure matchup between specialists as you will find in the modern UFC between high-level fighters. Uh, Barboza, the 36-year-old Brazilian, is 22-10 and 10 overall. He is 16-10 and 10 in the UFC. He is 2-2 two and two since dropping to featherweight. Uh, those four fights at featherweight, a loss to Dan Ige, wins over Makwan Amarkani and Shane Burgos, and most recently, last August, in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 30, a TKO lost to Giga Chikadze in the third round. He'll be taking on Mitchell, the uh, undefeated prospect, 27-year-old uh, out of Arkansas, perfect 14-0 overall, a perfect 5-0 since joining the UFC out of the 27th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he fought most recently on the UFC's Halloween card in 2020, taking a dominant unanimous decision over Andre Feely. He has been on the shelf ever since then, has made the news in recent weeks for other reasons, but whatever those reasons, we'll talk about them on the recap if it's worth talking about. Otherwise, he comes into this fight and he comes in as the slight favorite despite the layoff. He is minus 150, Barboza plus 130 on the comeback. Keith, this feels like a two true outcomes fight, but I mean, tell me if I'm wrong and tell me who you think gets it done. Yeah, so it's it's an intriguing fight because, man, I mean, the way Mitchell has taken out the you know lower-level competition, he's put himself in kind of same with the next fight we're going to talk about with RDA and, and Viziev. Like, eventually you have to get those named guys, and that's what Mitchell has done. Um, Mitchell, yeah, he's a southpaw with a very herky-jerky style, like very unorthodox. He uses pressure striking just to for, like not even seem like he uses his pressure to do damage. He uses his pressure to force his opponents back to um to get the takedowns. Now he surprisingly he does really well to keep his head off the center line. That's something I'm surprised about uh, Bryce Mitchell. I also think he has underrated power, and I think some of that comes because he lands shots that even though he's not the most skilled striker, he lands shots that wouldn't land on other fighters. But because of the threat of the takedowns, his opponents uh, focusing so much on that that he actually lands shots because of it. Uh, lots of kicks on the feet. He does follow the kicks into the pocket. Uh, he doesn't like to be pushed back on his back foot. He doesn't. He's not going to give you the, op the opportunity to do that often. Uh, he does a good job to use his striking to set up his his takedown attempts um, and just follow his striking into the takedown range. Nice timing on on his takedown, especially if if his opponents wind up on anything. 
Uh, he likes snatch singles. He's extremely good on the ground. At this point, yeah, sure, he doesn't have the grappling chops that, you know, other, you know, black belt hunters and all this stuff. But it's at the point when you see what he does on the ground, you have to put him in that elite MMA grappling. Uh, he's very good at winning scrambles. He's constantly keeping his hips moving and following his opponent's hips. Has slick, slick back takes. I, I mean, he has twister wins. He almost had back-to-back fights with the twister win. Uh, good flexibility. I mean, he made Charles Rosa a black belt look like he never grappled a day in his life, uh, oh. which seems Dude, like a lot of people's. One but, of the first kind of voyeuristic moments of the COVID era, the empty era, uh, arena era, was when he was just big brothering Rosa on the ground, and Rosa, this black belt, was trying to taunt him to get back up and swing. Like, yeah. that's that's yeah. a rough moment for a top-level grappler when you're yeah. just saying, hey, can't we just get back up and slug it out? Yeah, and if you if you take him down, he's he's going to create a scramble, and he looks for switches and, and Grammy rolls and stuff like that. Um, and he's got strong, good cardio. I mean, you see him digging, going in a heavy grappling matchup, still looking to finish his late. Uh, Barbosa, we kind of know what he is at this point. Um, Muay Thai striker. He's he's a builder because he does damage, and then he builds on pawn of his damage, where he, he he smells blood. He really turns it up. I've said this for a while. I know you agree with this. He's an underrated boxer, and it's not because uh, he's not like that skilled and like oh he's a little bit more skilled. He's like no, he's extremely skilled. It's just that his kicks take all the credit. That we don't talk about like how quick his hands are and how explosive he is and how good of a jab he has and that like his left hook to the body is one of the best strikes in MMA. Uh, we've seen him hurt so many guys with that. Uh, his straight right is accurate. I mean, he dropped uh, Makwan and Marcani with it twice. He knocked Shane Burgos out in, in a, a good striker with that. Um, power hooks to the body. Uh, I'd say not crushing power, but plus power. And then legendary kicks. Kicks to the body, kicks kicks everywhere. I mean, uh, legs, body, head. I think his takedown defense needs a little bit more credit than it deserves. However, he does struggle with his get-up game. And he also fades late. Um, he's he's been in so many war, wars though too that I'm I'm always waiting for just to draw drop right out like the just the floor drop out on him. One of these like like in the villain movies, the trap door. He's standing on the trap door and it just gives out. I mean, could you think about like the amount of damage Habib did to him and Kevin Lee did to him and Justin Gaethje did to him and his last fight against Giga Chikasi. Um, I expect his chin to completely fall off at one point. Uh, as far as Chikasi put it on him his last fight, to me that says a lot more about Chikasi than it did about Barbosa. Um, so, as far as the prediction goes, when I first when this fight was first made, I go, man, is is Mitchell ready for a guy like Barbosa? Like Barbosa's an underrated grappler. People are gonna say he's gonna take him down. And then when I really started thinking about this fight, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the perfect matchup for, for Mitchell. He has the perfect style to beat Barboza. The way you beat Barboza is you crowd him, you pressure him back, you crowd his kicks, you get inside his kicking range. You you still get out of a lot of danger because of his punching range, but you just follow him in, you get to his hips, you land takedowns, you hold him down, you wear him down, and you beat him up. And in Mitchell's case, you look for uh, submissions. Mitchell can do all that. I mean, he gets inside already. He's very good pressuring. He's very good at getting takedown. And he has a great, great grappling, a specifically his top game. I expect him to put 
Barboza down. I expect him to put Barboza through the ringer with sub attempt, sub attempts, but never getting one. Give me Mitchell in a dominant, like, holy shit, what did he just do? He just 30 26, Edson Barboza. Give me Mitchell in a dominant decision. I'm with you here in terms of like the general outcome of the fight. Uh, I expect uh, Barboza might have some success early on. I, I mean, yeah, the, the blueprint has been written on how to beat him. I mean, it's, the blueprint's been out there since like, you know, Michael Johnson and Donald Cerrone and Jamie Varner were fighting him like eight or nine years ago. But if everybody could follow it, you know, he wouldn't be one of the winningest guys in the history of the lightweight division. It's still hard to do. And I think he's going to give Mitchell a little trouble in the early going. Like he's, you got to do more than just run at him. Like, like he's going to test Mitchell's footwork and, and, uh, and striking and his feints for sure. But because Mitchell has shown the ability to push a hard pace for three rounds with no problem. And Barboza, as you pointed out, has been known to fade a bit. I think this is going to go, in Mitchell's direction more and more. Maybe he doesn't get the takedown at all in the first round and he loses that first round. But I think he's going to start getting it either in the first or maybe in the second round. And from there, I think it's going to be, uh, I think it is going to be all Mitchell. Uh, he's just that good on the ground. He's kind of like, well, kind of like Charles Oliveira that way, where he doesn't have the the credentials because he got so young into MMA and just started working on MMA instead of winning medals and trophies and grappling competitions. But like Oliveira, it also means that his game has just turned into what is MMA effective. Um, so give me Mitchell in a fight where he may have some trouble in the early going, but once he gets it to the ground, I think it's going to be all she wrote. Edson Barboza has not been tapped out since 2015. It was Tony Ferguson who did it. Uh, I think we're going to see something new here, kind of like we saw when he lost to Giga Chikadze, and we were like, man, Edson Barboza has never been like badly outstruck and we watched him get badly outstruck. I think we're going to see him get tapped out on Saturday. Give me Bryce Mitchell by second round submission and it will be a coming out uh, party for a guy who, as long as he keeps winning fights, figures to be a lightning rod and, uh, you know, UFC needs personalities. The co-main event of UFC 272 is a lightweight matchup between Rafael Dos Anjos and Rafael Faziv. The quest to figure out who's the best Rafael in the UFC. This had been scheduled to be the main event of UFC Fight Night 201 two weeks ago. It got kicked down the road, uh, I believe because of visa issues for Fiziev, but it is now the co-main event here, and it is certainly more than welcome, uh, as this is a high-level matchup. Dos Anjos, the former lightweight champ, is 30-13 and 13 overall. He's 19-11 and 11 in the UFC. That, however... You got to split it. It is 15 and seven at lightweight, four and four at welterweight. So he's a 500 fighter at welterweight, you know, kind of like BJ Penn, another former uh, lightweight champ. He's 15 and seven at lightweight and doesn't really have a whole whole lot of bad losses there. He celebrated his return to the lightweight division by beating uh, Paul Felder by split decision in the main event of UFC Fight Night 182 all the way back in November of 2020. Since then, he has been on the shelf but he is back and uh, at least claims to be locked in at uh, lightweight for good. Claims he thinks he has another title run in him. If so, it all starts on Saturday. Uh, he'll be taking on Faziv. The 28-year-old Kyrgyzstani is 11-1 overall. He is 5-1 in the UFC. 
He lost his debut to Magomed Mustafaev by a highlight reel uh, spinning back kick knockout in about 90 seconds. Since then, he's been perfect, uh, winning five straight over Alex White, Mark Dukhazy, Hanato Moicano, Bobby Green, and most recently, uh, in December at UFC on ESPN Font versus Aldo, Brad Riddell, whom he knocked out in the third round with a uh, spinning uh, wheel kick of his own. He is the comfortable favorite here. Fazeev, minus 250 or so. Dos Anjos, around plus 200. Uh, Keith, there's no respect for the former champ out there. I, I don't know if it's just because Fazeev has been that spectacular, yeah. because there's question about Dos Anjos' age and the long layoff, but whatever the reason, he's a 2-1, to 2.5-1 to one underdog. Uh, who gets it done? How does this fight play out? All right, so um, <laughs> when... This fight was first met, matched up. I said, you know what I'm not going to do with the breakdown? I'm not going to do a dad joke and say, I'm going to take Raphael, uh, or <laughs> in this case, Rafael. You know, it doesn't work too good with it's pronounced differently. But I said, uh, I'll leave the dad jokes to, to somebody else. So I want to I I throw out some love, which, which we don't do this enough. But I'm going to throw out some love to uh, a really good uh, show uh, with two, two really good analysts. One is called The Fight Analyst, Garrett Kerman. And then his partner is the the fight professor, Colin Crandall from MMA Power. Both are really good dudes. Um, Colin Crandall is the ultimate like dad joke guy. He'll call me up and he always got like dad jokes for me. Just a really good dude. I want you guys to check out his show. And I'm predicting right now. I'm not sure how any of my predictions will go on this card. But I'm predicting right now Colin will make a dad joke based on Raphael versus Rafael. So check that show out and see if I'm right. And our show will come out first. So uh, I think they, they're more near the end of the week. So check out that show and tell me if, if he does. But, man, so back to this one. So, I, you know, when you have 14, guy, 14 fights, 28 guys in the fight, you can't do – enough tape study on every fight as you want. Uh, Rafael Dos Santos was the guy that I definitely wanted to, he was number one on my list and who I wanted to look into and um, kind of see what they have, see, you know, if he's washed up or not. I saw a lot of things I liked still from RDA. Yeah, he's 37 and obviously, you know, he's been out for like over a year now or going on almost a year and a half since we've last seen him fight, which I know he didn't want to happen and at 37 as we just talked about the last fight, like it could all fall apart instantly at 37. But when, based on what I've last seen him, he's still well-rounded Southpaw with high output, not many tells little short shots, tax combinations. He loves that lead left, um, throwing the power straight power shot down the pipe, which lands for him on, you know, underrated power for his entire career. He, he's, he can start you uh, a lot of good calf kicks, he has taken damage over a lot of damage over the years. You figure like the Tony Ferguson fight, the Colby Covington fight. I mean, he got knocked out by Eddie Alvarez, obviously. Um, but I, he still moves forward, eating shots while landing better shots inside. Good uh, close quarter striking. I he it's weird. This is gonna sound weird, but for such an accomplished BJJ black belt, he, I actually think he's underrated, like grappler, an underrated wrestler, spe specifically his wrestling. Because he's taken down some really good 
guys that uh, I thought was better wrestlers than on paper, and he still gets the fight to the ground. Uh, obviously, he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, has 10 submission wins, never been submitted ever in his entire career. He's got good cardio still. I mean, he's, his last fight against Paul Filder, still going hard, throwing combination 25 minutes into the fight, uh, which is uh, – is this fight 25? This fight's 25 minutes, isn't it? Because I know it was the main event, and they kept it 25, right? I believe they kept it as a five-round co-main, yes. Yeah, which is good. Good for them. It's good, it's good you know, because uh, Fazeev deserves that, like, five-round fight. Um, so – and then, obviously, he's got so much high – not only do they have experience, he obviously has so much high-level experience, uh, RDA, which is tough. Now, move on to Fazeev. Fazeev is a guy that – you know, obviously, he's been the opposite. He's been very active. We've we've been talking about him. I mean – I said last time I led with this last time I'm gonna say it again. His striking is off the charts. I mean, but Tiger Muay Thai guy, uh, while I still think he's undersized for the weight class, he's so skilled. South he's southpaw, but he really switches and fights constantly out of both stances. So technically sound, just like RDI said, not not a lot of tells or really no tells. He's explosive, blazing fast, crisp, snapping, really recoils the shots. So he's not like, yeah, uh, you know, he. But I don't even know when you as fast as you throw a punch out, it's supposed to be the same speed that comes back. And a lot of guys don't do that. A lot of guys do this like dropping, rechambering. Not him. Uh, super fast. He's so good at sliding in and out of the pocket, unloading shots. Um, he throws combination when he attacks. He cuts off the cage well. He's got huge power. He's good at uh, sliding out of the way attacks with some of the best head movement you'll see. Just sliding out of way of attack, but still leading himself. Close enough where he can come right back with a combination. Um, and if not, he also kind of has this high guard thing going. Um, some of the best body kicks you'll see in, in MMA. Good leg kicks. Uh, he'll he'll just he'll just check. I love him. He just he'll just like throw a high kick up to the face, just quick, just out, out of the blue, like just to check you, keep you honest, make you thinking about it. Uh, he'll throw in a, a fun spinning attack. I mean, you go back to the Bradley Dell spinning wheel kick, uh, which started the knockout. Uh, great clinch game, loves the plump pinch, knees and elbows, good offensive wrestler, good defensive wrestler, uh, not much of a submission. The, literally, the only thing you break down is you say he's he's not as much of a submission threat. That's it. So uh, it, it's and then he obviously doesn't have the high level experience RDA. So as I said, I watched a lot of RDA. He showed me a lot more than I expected, and I definitely don't think he's done. That said. I think this might be the easiest pick on the entire card. Uh, this is a passing of the torch fight. RDA, RDA is going to have to try to turn this into a wrestling match. He's going to have to turn it into this grueling, clinch battling affair. I just don't think he's going to be able to. I think Fizio is going to be too fast for him. We, you just talked about Brian Mitchell trying to get into Barbosa, and Barbosa is going to challenge his footwork, challenge his angles, all that. That's what Fizio is going to do to RDA. I just see him beat him to the punch. I see him able to stuff the takedowns. I see him throwing huge arsenal of attacks, all kinds of weapons, spinning elbows, the high kicks, low kicks, deep kick, everything. Uh, you said RDA's championship run starts on Sunday. It might start on Sunday. It's also ending <laughs> on Sunday. Uh, what am I saying Sunday? Saturday. It might start on Saturday. It's ending Saturday because RDA hardly ever gets knocked out. I think it happens this fight. Give me Fiziev. I'm going to see if Fiziev knocks him out in the third round. Yeah, I mean, let me, you know, get the spoiler out of the way. I'm going with Fiziev as well. I, I do think there is more intrigue and more 
I, I think upset potential that then it sounds like you do because where I saw RDA come up against the wall at welterweight was when he ran into guys where he wasn't the better wrestler or he wasn't the physical bully because at lightweight, he's always been a bully. Like whether he's winning with, with his striking or he's winning on the ground, it, a lot of it springs from being the guy that's able to tell where the fight takes place, whether he's just taking Anthony Pettis down and, you know, just grinding him out or he's the aggressor on the feet and he's just like wiping out someone like Donald Cerrone. I think what makes his game run is when he is the better wrestler. And when he ran into welterweights like Covington and Usman, who basically could do to him RDA things that he used to do to lightweights, that's where he hit his ceiling. I'm with you that Fiziev is, I think he's going to beat Dos Anjos, and I think it's going to be a coming out party, but he's going to need to do something that not many people have done to Dos Anjos. Like, uh, I, he's going to need to, I think he's going to need to hurt him early, like start hitting him with power early and give him something to think about. Don't let him get into his comfort zone. Don't let him clinch and just run you to the fence. Uh, and he, yeah, he's, he's just going to need to beat uh, Dos Anjos and not really give him a chance to get his grindy approach untracked. Uh, because of that, even though I think there's more potential here for uh, Dos Anjos to, to weather the storm and kind of uh, run his game against Fiziev and start taking him down and start wearing him out, uh, I think Fiziev is going to uh, hit him early, hit him often. Uh, give me Fiziev by first round knockout. I'm with you. It's a coming out party. It's the kind of name victory he needs to get into the title picture at lightweight. And yeah, a uh, passing of the torch moment. That brings us to the main event of UFC 272. It is a scheduled five rounds of welterweight action between one-time roommates, one-time friends, now appearing to be enemies. We're not sure. Like, there's a sense that some of this beef might be manufactured. But whatever the case, it is Colby Covington versus Jorge Masvidal. Keith, uh, we talked a little bit about this fight in the intro and you know any thoughts about it here before i kind of get down to our pre-tale of the tape yeah so it's a it's a fantastic matchup regardless of the backstories i mean the two of the best welterweights in the world my question is this we talked about that both guys are coming off two losses to the chip no i understand yeah i understand covington has as a win in between and the and um but my question is this who do you think has more pressure? Because they're both backs against the wall. A loss really hurts them. But who who does it hurt worse? I think it hurts Covington worse. Okay, explain. Because I agree. I just want to see if we have the same answer. Uh, Masvidal has entered the neighborhood of Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor, but especially Nate Diaz. Because mm -hmm. he had a ton of losses before he got famous. He's had some losses since he got famous, and his marketability is no longer strictly dependent on his results in the cage. Regardless of how you feel about the specifics of what he is saying, people only care about what Colby Covington is saying as long as he keeps winning. Yeah, I everything. So yeah, I agree with everything you said. That's exact. That was my exact answer, and it was the, not even my exact answer. Those my exact examples. Like I was going Nate and Nick. Like mm -hmm. no one. The, now we care. The, the most hardcore, the more the purest guys like you, guys like me, guys like Jay Petri and Mike Fridley and and Marcel Dorf, like 
we care. We will be honest. Say, well, Nate Diaz ain't that good. Nick, Nick Diaz is terrible. But the casuals were extremely excited to see Nick return, even though he was uh, didn't win a meaningful, meaningful fight in like a decade. Uh, Nate Diaz still always asked about, still one of the most popular fighters. Yeah, Kobe has raised his markability. There's a he does have a type of cult following that's going to follow him no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he still has not gone over like Masvidal. I mean, a perfect example about Masvidal getting over the fans and not mattering who wins losses. He never had a good record to start with, you know, like like the Diaz brothers. So yeah, I agree. And this is what I was thinking about: if Kobe wins, and you know, when he wins, he always takes the opportunity, jump on the mic, act crazy, say something purposely to get people pissed off. Who does he focus that on? You, can you do Usman again? He's already beat you twice. Uh, and and yes, like- I understand both fights were great. Both of them were close fights. Kobe was right at the end of the fight. He's in both of them with a chance to win. I get that. But And then the other one, but it's still you're down 0-2. And then the other rivalry, the other guy you had was Masvidal. Who else is left? Honestly, I mean, it's either calling out like, you know, Diaz or McGregor or Khabib, or if yeah. he wants to just show like balls of rock and get like the hardcore guys as well as the casual fans excited. You don't, don't, call don't out say it. Ha- say okay, it. did you say it? Did you say who? Did you say my boy? You call out Hamza Chimaev. I think it has to be. I, that's exactly the guy I was thinking of. It has call to out be. Hamza Chimaev. You say, yeah, you say some really insensitive shit about Chechnya and you get them all pissed off, and all of a sudden you have. Uh, you have a fight that I am incredibly excited about and the casuals are incredibly excited about because Shamayev, like, his name is so hot right now. Yeah. I. So I want to say this about Kobe. So I understand it. It's a stick. Like, like sure. we get it. We all get it. Most of us realize that he's not... He, he pushes it too far. But like, deep down, I don't think he's, like, this terrible human being. You know? Don't go after the Russians. Like, don't say something insensitive about Chechnyans and shit. Cause like those guys don't fuck around. <laughs> Excuse my language. Yeah. Like <laughs> those are some crazy dudes out there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can say some, you thought Brazilians were bad. <laughs> <laughs> d- 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 don't, don't do it. Kobe. I mean, it- it's all cool until, you know, you're finding, Horses' heads in 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 your garbage, or there's a group of Chechens showing up, burning your house down. Um, oh, oh, that's obviously I'm joking too, but uh, yeah, Kobe. I don't know where the stick goes. It, I mean, because you're not gonna waste that on Vicente Luque or you know or whoever Bilal Muhammad, <laughs> you know. So uh, Connor to me is too lazy. I mean, you're one of millions. There's not. You've never had that. He's not in your weight class. You never had that. There's never. I don't. I don't remember ever being like any Connor, Kobe or Fidesz. It really fizzled. Never. Um. Yeah. I just. We'll get to the fight, but I just. I, I thought that was very, very interesting that we both had the same exact answer. Yeah. I, yeah. Let me ask you this: Who's the UFC hoping wins? 
I bet they're hoping that Masvidal wins. Because yeah, for the same reason that we're talking about here, reason. it's hard yeah. to figure out what to do with Covington next. I mean, yeah. if Covington wins, or honestly, even if Covington loses, I bet the UFC just like does something like use him to get Leon Edwards out of the title title picture in his next fight. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Somehow somehow Kobe wins and Leon loses. <laughs> um if Kobe loses, and obviously we'll we'll cover this a lot more in the recap. Do you think he could change weight classes? Yes. He is. Oh, dude. I, of course we know who's going to call. Wait, 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 wait. He's going to call up Poirier. That's true. He's been That's he's been talking mad out. shit. Like, now that Covington is across town, he's like, I can piss off everybody at ATT. Yeah, It'll yeah, be great. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah. Like, dude, Colby, for your, one, so, yeah, for your own, like, livelihood, and two, for your own career. Go after Poirier instead. Like Poirier still might beat your ass, but I mean, yeah. you could. Not that I, not that I, mean, I say, I, not that I say you should do not, not me, but Kobe. You want to you want to push the limit. You want to talk about his wife and shit, and in your DM, you want to go all that. Do that with Poirier. They're like go after him instead. Not and, just for the record. I am not saying people should talk about people's wives. I'm just saying and, they don't want to do that. And I'm I'm intrigued by that matchup. Hell, like whether they do it at 155 or 170. Because tell dope. you what, man, it really is a dope in, match. In camp, in shape, who walks around heavier, Dustin Poirier or Colby Covington? Dustin Poirier. Dorian, yeah. Dustin Poirier, absolutely. Even, like, yeah, probably 15 pounds on him. Yeah, there's like a reason that Colby Covington weighs in at like 168 for non-title fights. Like just in shape, he's doesn't yeah. he's not a huge guy. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable that he makes the skill set and the game plan that he has work. Being a, a small welterweight, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's let's talk about the the X's or the numbers here. Uh, Covington, thirty four year old Oregonian, sixteen and three overall, wow. eleven and three in the UFC. Uh, he did lose his last time out. That was the rematch with uh, Kamaru Usman in the main event of UFC two sixty eight last uh, November. Before that, he beat Tyron Woodley in an overdue and extremely one sided. Uh, fight, you know, went to the fifth round, but Covington had completely dominated. And then before that, of course, he lost the first fight to Usman in an all-time classic UFC 245. Uh, he'll be taking on Masvidal. The 37-year-old Miami native is 35 and 15 over the course of a long and storied career. He is 12 and 8 in the UFC. Uh, he is on a two-fight losing streak, both of those to Usman. Prior to that, he'd been on a three-fight winning streak over uh, Darren Till, Ben Askren, and Nate Diaz. Those, of course, marked his run as Sherdog.com's and everybody's breakthrough fighter of 2019, where he went from just, just another hardcore fan favorite that we talked about off the top into arguably the biggest star in the sport for uh, much of that year with the right combination of in-cage violence and just the perfect soundbite on the mic. Because thing about him is he doesn't go in these long rants just he has the perfect one-liner for the occasion and that's all that's all it took uh odds on this one super necessary that was like super necessary two like you know a three piece in the soda just you know yeah uh covington a healthy favorite here he's minus 350 masvidal plus 270 uh both of these guys have lost twice to kamaru uzman but there's a difference in the detail because Colby Covington has lost two very competitive fights with Usman 
I, I mean, their first fight was anybody's fight going into the, the final round. And then, you know, Usman hurt him, broke his jaw and, you know, won, uh, won the fight. But their second fight, also very competitive. Whereas Masvidal faced Usman twice. One was a pretty straightforward five round wipeout and the other was a beatdown. So, you know, there, there's a there's a little difference between 0-2 and 0-2. The odds here, I mean, the odds here tell me that the odds makers think that Covington is going to try to take Masvidal down early and often because that's where his best advantage is. Yeah. Covington's striking is definitely underrated and it has come along enormously for a guy that was pretty much a one-dimensional wrestler six, seven, eight like, years ago. Oh, like, like three years ago. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even like, just three years ago, yeah. I mean, he is a high volume striker, good, you know, sharp jab, uh, good punches, low power. He like he trades off, you know, uh, he trades off pure power for volume and for being light enough on his uh, feet. Not that, you know, that he can transition from striking to takedown attempts very easily. And he's up and aware, you know, and able to react to any of his opponent's takedown attempts. But Masvidal is a better striker. Masvidal, you know, one of the better boxers in whatever division he's been in for 12 or 15 years at this point. And the big difference between Masvidal and Covington is that Masvidal has power. And he has power that just comes from just the natural mechanics of his body that he was born with and good technique. Because he doesn't wind up on anything. But everything he he lands, just there's some lead in it. He's just got he's got rolls of nickels in his in his gloves. You know, like he wiped out uh, Darren Till, knocked out Donald Cerrone, and they weren't with giant haymakers. They were just well timed, clean, compact strikes in both cases. And in the case of the Till fight, it was with one that he had been measuring him for since the middle of the first round. Just patient, poised, like a veteran, and he just he completely wiped out a much bigger fighter who's a pretty good striker in his own right until if this thing like stays on the feet if these guys made a gentleman's agreement backstage that the floor is lava i think masvidal wins handily uh not necessarily by knockout because another underrated thing about covington is like how good his chin is like it is really hard to hold, hurt colby covington on the feet uh but yeah covington's striking is going to make the difference. He might test out his luck on the feet for a while, but the threat of the takedown is going to be there. And he's always been a smart fighter, very smart fighter, fights to his best advantage. I, I expect he will be fainting level changes and probably go for at least one takedown in earnest within the first 90 seconds to two minutes of this fight, even if he doesn't get it, just to tell Masvidal, these are the terms of engagements. This is what you're going to need to worry about for the rest of the fight, and you ignore it at your peril. Uh, in terms of a specific pick, I'm not going to pick Covington to finish Masvidal because he's not high-powered on the feet and on the ground. I'm not going to call him a lay and pray artist. He's busy on the ground. He's not trying to just do enough to not get stood up. He's trying to advance position. He's trying to land strikes, but he's just not much of a finisher on the ground either. And mm -hmm. Masvidal is extremely crafty on the ground, underrated submission game. Uh, like, I expect that Covington will land takedowns and get a ton of riding time and probably win three or four rounds just in a fun matchup, but one that's, I mean, not going to live up to whatever hype the UFC is laying on it. Give me Covington by decision. Yeah. So before we get to my pick, <laughs> let me ask you this. Would it be awesome if when Kobe and Masvidal were roommates and sharing a little small apartment and 
Masvidal was a like mid-card guy and Kobe couldn't even get a fight and he was holding signs, we'll fight for food. And they just came up with this big plan. This is all a big, you know, Manchurian candidate type thing that we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna become stars and then we're gonna feud with each other so we get this massive pay-per-view. I would love the like after this when they say that, that'd be that'd be awesome. Um or, or, or they they do it as like a trilogy fight. Then they announce that it was a big, they're best friends, and and uh, Kobe's getting married, and Jorge's his best man, or some shit. Um, uh, as far as the fight goes, uh, it, just a good fight. I mean, Masvidal, you mentioned you were talking about his striking. He really is a good striker. Uh, good footwork to avoid strikes. Uh, concerning though is he can be gun shy. Like he's such a good striker, but he can be gun shy. I think that's changed. A little bit more. He's more aggressive over the years than he was, but uh, still not as much output as I'd like to see. But Chris Jab, uh, his counter left hook is his best strike. That's what the one that he put Darren Till out with. I love that he, and I've said this before, that this, these, that point and the next point that I, I keep saying a lot. I, I love that he switches stances and then instantly explodes before you can adjust. So if if he's in the orthodox, he switches to southpaw, and then he'll throw something right as he switches. Before his opponent can say, "Going okay, Southport is going to come from this angle." Oh, that's smart. Uh, he loves power combos, especially his straight left, left hook counter, good power. I, I would put in good. I would put in great power. Like I actually think his power is a little overrated, but definitely like if I mean if he starches Colby with one shot, it, it wouldn't shock me. Um, it, it was well. It surprised me a little bit because Usman couldn't put him out. But then you always wonder, like the damage. I mean, he just had basically stand up affair for fifty minutes with Usman. Does that plus the shot from Masvidal put him out? Um, he's added leg kicks recently, which I like. But what I would say, if I said it, his power might be a little slightly overrated. I think his his offensive and defensive wrestling is underrated. It's so funny that. Yes, Kobe should have the advantage in the wrestling. Absolutely. But, like, it's not a cakewalk. Um, Masvidal has re- will wrestle himself. If he gets you to the cage, he'll drop down on the legs and, and pull you out. He's not a shooter, but he, he can get you down. Um, he'll even catch a kick. I've seen him catch a kick. Uh, so, Ma- Usman did take him down five times in that fight, but Usman has such a draining style. Like he, he was chest to chest, wearing on him for a while. Kind of a little boring fight, um, but he's pretty good at scrambling. I mean, you go back to the and this is a long time ago. Go back to the Damian Maya fight. Damian Maya might be the greatest grappler in the history of MMA. And yeah, Maya got him down, but he couldn't submit him. And there was a lot of portions where Masvidal was making things happen with Damian Maya on his back. Uh, and he hasn't been submitted in I think 16 or 17 years, so I'd be sh- that would be really surprising if Kobe submitted it. Now move over to Kobe uh, Southpaw, dude. His last submission loss was the Toby Amada like Toby Amata, inverted yeah. triangle, like the original Bellator moment. Yeah, remember when they used to call them Bellator moments because they'd like put yeah. their highlights out for free on YouTube. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, really yeah. Uh, what was that? 16, 17 years ago. Oh, what what year was that? Like. Like George Bush. It was, was 2009, so it was. Uh, it's coming up on okay. 13 years ago. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I exaggerated, but 13 years ago. Okay. Uh, Kobe Southpaw. He's a he's a very high output striker. I mean, his last fight might not be the example, but most fights he's has this insane output. Um, he was a little gun shy against Usman in the second fight. 
Um, sure, you're facing a guy who last time you went against him, last time you the last round you went against him, he broke well, he broke your jaw and then knocked you out. So I get why you might be a little gun shy. I actually thought that cost him the contest. I thought he lost the I thought he won the late rounds. And mm-hmm. he put himself in a hole and then he started catching up or like kind of like tortoise in the hair thing and uh you started running hair started running a little too late. <laughs> um but uh he does he does really good sliding his head just off the center line to land cleaner shots of his own. He attacks with combination. He's he's very good at throwing down in the pocket. Uh, I lo- he's he's good hand fighter. Like he'll, he'll he does a lot of hand fighting, grabbing. Um, one thing he likes to do is grab uh, the hand fighting and then like throw this looping uh, shot around it. Uh, similar to <laughs> similar to kind of like what Jake Paul did to. Uh, Tyron Woodley, like you kind of start going forward and then you wrap, you they call it the wraparound. Um, but obviously, Kobe's on the left side. Uh, you mentioned he does lack one punch ending power, that's the big uh thing about him. But he just touches, he just touches, and then he unloads the biggest shot. And he's 34, which is really surprising. Like, I, I thought he was a little bit younger than that, but he just he just seems younger. He's got that like kind of a baby face. His birthday was like five days ago. Okay, but still, like even if he was yeah. thirty three, like he's got a little bit of beef. I, I was gonna guess like late twenties, so I was I was off. But um, he did rock Usman a couple times, especially in the second fight. He had him he had him like chicken like a little bit. So he might have better power than we think. Um, he also does well to, to battle in the clinch. If he gets the clinch, he can beat you up there. Um, a lot of kicks, and he has added a lot of kicks to his game recently. But as far as his wrestling, great entries. Um, and he's even even if he doesn't get that, he's just relentless to get the fight to the ground. Or he's really relentless to get you pinned against the cage and have him just like hanging on your legs and put you in a position where you have to like uh, like he'll almost, he's almost resting there and you're trying to work so you don't get taken down. Uh, he'll I mean he'll just have you carry his weight and wear you down. If he's on top, great great top control. He advances position on the ground, good ground and pound. Um, more like you said, busy, like just staying busy and hitting you. And legendary cardio, like some of the best cardio in the history of the UFC. Like he's not going to tire out. He's going to be going hard in the fifth round. So I've seen people making predictions in this fight, and I've seen guys taking both sides. I've seen some people taking Masvidal, some people taking Kobe. What I have seen, though, is people who are taking Masvidal are giving Kobe a very good chance. People who are taking Kobe, a lot of them are not giving Masvidal like any chance. And that is really surprising because I want to remind people like how well like a lot of people thought Masvidal beat Meyer, like I didn't, but a lot of people thought he beat. Even he got out grappled. They, some people thought he, he did. Um, I'm also going with Kobe though, and and I'm really there's four things that stand out to me. One is the output. If if Masvidal can give away rounds and and Kobe just banks him, that obviously go to his advantage. Now. In fairness, recently we've seen like a little change in both guys. One guy's output has dropped a little bit. One guy's output uh, has increased. So, man, that won't be a big deal. Uh, the other thing that I think, Colby, I'll say this, and I know you kind of disagree with this, and I think most people would disagree with this. If Colby outstruck Masvidal, I would be slightly surprised, but I wouldn't be earth-shattering surprised. If it's a 25-minute stand-up fight and Colby wins – I really like. I'd be like, okay, like Kobe's good. Mm-hmm. Um, if flipping that, if Masvidal out grapples Kobe, then I would be shocked. So like to this, I see one avenue 
a victory for Masvidal. Well, I see two avenues of victory. Obviously, one much bigger for Covington than the other one. So, but the reason why I think he can he can land a lot of strikes and combos on the feet is simply due to the threat of the takedown. I think one of the best things Kobe could do is just shoot a takedown right as the fight starts. Not Ben Askren, like, you know, get the cage 30 seconds and shoot a takedown, even if he gets stopped. Just putting that in the back of your head, that it's there. Uh, the third reason is obviously is his wrestling and his top control. So if he does get the takedown, it does just win rounds, weighing, you know, weighing on him. And then the fourth one, obviously, is the cardio that he can do it hard all five minute, five rounds, all 25 minutes. I don't know if Moswell does can do the same. So I think Kobe, I think Kobe gets his hand raised. I think Kobe wins uh, a unanimous decision. There you go. Two picks uh, for Covington to win the grudge match of sorts, though both with a fair amount of respect for what Masvidal brings to the table and and his chances of getting it done. Uh Afterwards, certainly we're going to have a ton to talk about because whoever wins is going to have some things to say, I'm sure. And this is exactly the kind of fight where if there's not a knockout, they're probably going to stick a mic in front of the loser's face, too. And that should be a lot of fun. Uh, can, I, is, can I request our listeners to do a couple things for us? I know this was one of our longer ones. Um, can they if you if you guys listen to this, you want us to continue to continue doing shows like this um, one please like the show Two, please share it three make a comment in the sections tell us who you're picking tell us what ones you think we're an idiot we don't take it we don't take offense uh we try to we try to go into the comments every single week and kind of talk back four if you haven't already subscribe to the sure dog page five check out other videos there's so many good other videos um commentary stuff other breakdowns interviews uh, i do a show just like this, where I do one championship cards, much shorter, so they're like about 15 minutes to a half hour max, depending on the amount of fights. And then number six, and this is probably the most important thing, Saturday night after the event, return to YouTube, which Ben will tell, tell you why. Because we do a recap, live recap, right after the main event, uh, you know, usually about 10 or 15 minutes after, uh, where Keith and I are live on the SureDog YouTube page. We are breaking down all these fights, what was good, what was bad, what was controversial, if anything. And the live chat section on the, the YouTube video is open. We have uh, you know, a good contingent of people yeah. that come in and chat That's with us every week, but there's also new faces every week. Uh, come show us what you know. Come let us know what you learned. Uh, if we got any of these picks wrong, and I assure you that we'll get some of these picks wrong, come let us have it. Let us know what dummies we were. But it's a it's a fun, interactive community there, and we would definitely love to see you. And unless you have any other thoughts, this has been the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 272, Covington versus Masvidal. I'm Ben Duffy. He is Keith Schillen. Thank you, as always, for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and, of course, enjoy the fights.